You are the companion, he is the man. You are two different things. You can't join. You can't love. Bridge to all decks. It's time for an epic episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and Ralph. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And, you know, this is this is just so important what we're doing. Not only is this one of your favorite episodes or your favorite episodes, Scott, but we have the most important guest we've had on Enterprise Incidents back. Ralph, thank you so much and welcome back to the show. And thank you for having me. Well, Ralph, this is quite an honor. Uh, I always knew that I was going to reach out to you so that you could join us for our Enterprise Incidents Deep Dive on Metamorphosis. But uh, after you joined us for our deep dive on your first Star Trek episode that you directed, This Side of Paradise, one of the things that just really struck me was just how perfectly you fit in as (laughs) an actual co-host with us here on Enterprise Incidents. It's like you are... You are one of us, so we're so grateful. Thank you. (laughs) For fans of Enterprise Incidents, for our listeners who've heard me talk about my love of metamorphosis here on Enterprise Incidents, but also elsewhere, such as the Roddenberry Vault, which came out in 2016 and had these wonderful, wonderful deleted scenes from Metamorphosis. So I got to to talk about that on the the three and a half hour documentary series on the Roddenberry Vault. But again, a little more recently, when uh, I got to be part of a commentary track on Inglorious Trexperts for Metamorphosis. I heard but, that one. But this this I have to say is is the one I've been waiting for because Steve and I have been so grateful to our listeners. And, and everyone who's been following us on Enterprise Incidents, everyone who gets what we're doing here on Enterprise Incidents with the original series. But without question, this has been the episode that I've been wanting to do the most. And before I get into why I love this episode so much, uh, the question that I've been waiting 32 episodes to ask my pal, my good friend, my co-host, and by the way, our extremely talented editor of Enterprise Incidents, Steve Morris, is Steve Morris. What do you think of Metamorphosis and how has your appreciation for this episode maybe changed over time as uh, we've gotten a little older and wiser? So it's always been an episode that I liked and it's always been an episode that was in, you know, the top third and I enjoyed it. But now I've known for years that this was your favorite and I hadn't watched it in a long time. And sitting down to watch it this time, I watched it. Yeah, as we've done with all the episodes, but in particular this one with such close attention and it went way up. I, you know, I'm, I don't it, I don't know if it goes up into my top three or four episodes, but it definitely went way up. And I and particularly in relationship to the things we've been talking thematically about the show, there's actually so much here that connects to stuff we talked about in those amazing run of episodes near the end of the first season. So it's really good. I, I ha- And I have to say that, first of all. Uh, for for everyone listening, every single time that we have rewatched an episode in preparation for Enterprise Incidents, almost every time we have seen these episodes in a whole new light because of the way that we're approaching the show, which Ralph, as you know, because you directed a whole bunch of them, they were standalone episodes. But because we are we are seeing Star Trek, we're looking at it as a serialized show. I didn't think this was possible 
Stephen Ralph. But when I rewatched Metamorphosis yesterday, again, I did not think it was possible, but I actually did see it in a whole new light because of what Steve is talking about, because of some of the themes and some of the patterns that we have seen, not just with the Star Trek stories, but also with our characters. And I'm very excited to to get into this deep dive with you, Ralph. Uh, but, but, you know, the reason why it is my number one favorite Star Trek episode of them all, not just of the original series, but of all 800 plus episodes of all of the Star Trek shows. It is my number one. And here is why. And we'll get into this in more depth as we go along. But for the for, for, for the most part, I see Metamorphosis as the quintessential example of what Star Trek is truly all about. A, a new life form that we don't understand, that we think poses a threat to us. But when we discover what this, this, this uh, life form is, it flips the episode, changes the tone like a light switch, and it becomes something so completely different. But even with that real quick shift in tone, it, it all works as a complete episode, and it is a beautiful, wonderful, touching, sensitive, and deeply moving episode it features what I think is one of the very best performances by a guest star on on all of Star Trek, a very underrated and overlooked performance from Eleanor Donahue. We'll get into that. I think it is a, uh, a, a milestone for William Shatner, and we'll get into that as well. But the question that Steve and I have for you, Ralph Sinetsky, <laughs> is how did you come to direct Metamorphosis? Well, after I did the first show, the side of paradise uh they booked me for another one and they just handed me metamorphosis and i was delighted because i felt uh, metamorphosis was very much like the side the, the devil in the dark yeah gene coon wrote devil in the dark because the stuntman came in with the costume for the horta and he i gather he wrote it in four days then he had time to think, and he really just reformatted, and he still has the monster, except this time it's a gentler monster, it's a different monster, uh, it doesn't look like a monster, in the companion, and he has Kirk and his crew more or less glued to a planet. In The Devil in the Dark, they were in down there to solve the mystery of the mind killings. Here... They're here because they have been abducted, and the companion is making sure that they don't leave. Exactly, and and just like you pointed out, Ralph, uh, and I and I've said this uh, many times, including on Enterprise Incidents, and including the episode that that you did with us previously. It was just as a tease, and I had said that if you take Devil in the Dark, which was written solely by Gene Kuhn, he was the only writer to work on that episode from outline to final draft teleplay. And the same happened here with Metamorphosis. I'll get to that in a second. But if you take Devil in the Dark and you turn it into a love story, the result is Metamorphosis. And like I said, Gene Kuhn, he wrote this story outline, okay, on April 
1967. So he completed two draft teleplays, the second of which came in on April 19th, a final draft, April 21st, a revised final draft on May 3rd, some page revisions that, that started on May 8th when the episode started filming. But he basically went from story outline to final draft in less than a month. I know, I know. Now, now, now the question that we have for you, Ralph, is when you were working on this side of paradise, you were working from, from a screenplay that, that had been written by a few people, most notably Dorothy Fontana. Uh, and by that time, Gene Kuhn was the showrunner of Star Trek. And now Gene Kuhn is still the showrunner of Star Trek at a time when I felt Star Trek was really hitting its stride in the beginning of the second season. But now you are directing an episode that was written solely by Gene Kuhn. And because he had passed away in the mid-70s, before, oh, yeah. before so much had been like rediscovered about Star Trek, so little is known about Gene Kuhn and what he was really like. So since you were directing his screenplay, what were your interactions with Gene Kuhn? What made him such a great writer-producer? Well, and I, as I said on when we did Paradise, I didn't have that much contact with him. He, he just wrote beautifully. And as a director, when you get a script like that, it's so much more fun and easier to, to expand on it rather than trying to improve and save it. I, I, I just I regret that I didn't know Gene Kuhn better where we could have really worked in cohorts with each other. I, w I would have liked working with him and he would have liked working with me. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. One of the things about the, about metamorphosis, in addition to the fact that, that Gene Kuhn's name is the only name on all of the uh, revisions and so on, is that this is Gene Kuhn's fourth original screenplay. Like, like it, it wasn't one that he rewrote. It wasn't uh, uh, which he had done extensively, just like Roddenberry did in the beginning of the first season. But this is his fourth original screenplay after Arena, Devil in the Dark, and Errand of Mercy. I was thrilled to read that it was nominated for an Emmy for special classification of individual achievements, special photographic effects for the Westheimer Company. So, Ralph, your episode was nominated for an Emmy. I didn't know that. How cool is that? <laughs> That's very cool, especially because it came during those darker years when uh, I wasn't connected to Star Trek. Mm. Well, well, that, well, well, we're looking forward to getting into that conversation as uh, when oh. we get to that point. Much later. Yeah, much later. Yeah. But for this one, you know, Ralph, you've heard us talk uh, and really seen the praises of, of director of photography, Jerry Finnerman, many, many times on Enterprise Incidents. But this episode in particular is, is I think it is the best looking episode of Star Trek. And it is also has one of the most beautiful scores most beautiful yes. musical scores so can you tell us about the score composed by george dunning well again scores were done after the a director left the show uh i do know that bobby justman uh contacted george dunning and that this was the first show that he did for star trek and it's i mean i'm thrilled <laughs> when you heard, when you like, when you saw Metamorphosis from the first time, 
and you, you know, you saw the complete, the complete cut and you heard the score. Well, again, like you, Scott, I loved the show and it was my, it was my favorite from the day I started filming it. I just, it was different. It was unique. Well, well, because you had done, you already got, got to know the cast. Yes. You, know, you, you got to know our, our main characters, you know, Shatner, Nimoy, and D. Kelly. So when you came back to direct Metamorphosis, like, what were the cat? what were Shatner and Nimoy like? Were like, hey, Ralph, welcome back. No, no. I just came back and went on the set and started shooting. Oh, wow. 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 My, my, my main connection with this was Jerry Finnerman. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that I have will have a lot to say about, but that 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 was where the big focus went. And working with the actors, it, especially with Leonard and even DeForest, the the two of them just were so easy. Shatner was different, but professional, but uh, but not not the connection that I had to Leonard and DeForest. Well, you really had a great connection with Leonard. He really trusted you. Oh, I know, I know. And and without it saying it, so did DeForest. Oh, that's great. That's really great. So did DeForest. Okay, well, well, the fact is, okay, the episode aired on November 10th, 1967. It was the 38th episode to air, but it was the 32nd episode to film uh, in six production days, which means Ralph Sinetsky brought it in on schedule I, I wasn't sure that it was six huh it was six days so you were right on schedule and it was filmed between may 11th and may 19th 1967 uh now it did go over budget a bit because let's face it trying to bring a show like star trek in on budget of one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars just seems like a, a thankless task so it did go over by more than thirteen thousand dollars so the final cost of metamorphosis was $198,493. But uh, George Dunning, again, uh, he recorded the score. It was his first one. The score was recorded on June 28, 1967. And George Dunning returned for five additional Star Trek episodes that he scored. Some of them directed by our friend Ralph Sinetsky. Return to Tomorrow, Patterns of Force, Is There in Truth No Beauty, The Empath, and The Children Shall Lead. And George Dunning, is a five-time Oscar nominee. One of his scores includes From Here to Eternity. Oh, wow. Um, I actually have a question for you, Ralph, because it's come up multiple times and it came up as we were kind of recapping the season. Scott's always pointed out what the budgets were, how we did, uh, when episodes went over budget. And my question is, how common was it for an episode of television at that time to go over budget? Uh, Most of them... Because of the what they were being paid by the network, did go over. Probably not by great amounts. They tried not to to go over, but most studios figured that they wanted to get five good seasons so they could go into syndication. Right. And they, if they had a successful series, they they accepted the overages, knowing that when they got into syndication, that was when they were going to get their money back. Yeah, that's what I figured. I think, you know, it's it's fairly con- – there's an expectation that things will sometimes go over budget. It's not that unusual. So, Steve, obviously you know how much I love Metamorphosis. But what I want to know is what was happening when Metamorphosis aired? Well, Scott, you know how 
in Star Trek. <laughs> there are a lot of episodes like Devil in the Dark, like Metamorphosis, where Captain Kirk has to realize that he was wrong and make <laughs> yeah. a change. Uh huh. Guess what? I have been wrong. In our last episode in yep. Cat's Paw, I said that we had been doing things where we talked about what was going on in the world when they shot it, and I thought we should switch to doing what was going on in the world when the show aired. Yeah. I was wrong. How so? The reason I was wrong <laughs> is because we're going in production order. Mm -hmm. The air date order is therefore out of order. So it meant that history was going to go forward to December, then back to mid-November, then forward to January. Uh, is that? Yeah. And so if we're and that makes history very confusing. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and so I would like to announce to the entire Enterprise Incident world, all Star Trek fandom, I was wrong. We're going back to the way we did it before. <laughs> and instead of telling you what was going on when the show aired, I would like to tell you what was going on when they filmed Metamorphosis between May 11th and May 19th in 1967. And I have to tell you, yep. there was a lot okay. happening. Let's hear it. So the first thing is, is that the Rush USSR president, Nikolai Podgorny, uh, met in Moscow with Egyptian officials, including the future president, Anwar Sadat, and he gave them false intelligence that Israel was mobilizing troops on their border with Syria and mm. planning an attack. Ooh. So right away, we yeah. have some real international espionage intrigue. And President Nasser of Egypt mobilized his troops on the Egyptian-Israeli border. Now, later on, we hear that he actually knew that the intelligence was false, but did it anyway. And I don't know if that's true. On the same day, the 100 millionth telephone was installed in the United States by AT&T. The 100 millionth? Wait, wait. Who the hell keeps track of, of exactly how many telephones <laughs> right? they install right? That is a great, great question. But apparently somebody did. On uh, May 12th, the Jimi Hendrix Experience released their first album. Are, Are you? you Experienced? Yeah. And that was just a few weeks before another great album that when we get to Who Mourns for Adonai's. We'll tell you what that album is. Well, there you go. On May 13, um, something that was described as a rebuttal to all the anti-war protests, 70,000 people marched down Fifth Avenue in New York in support of the troops in Vietnam. On May 14th, on the pretext of responding to the Israeli planned invasion of Syria, Nasser sent two more divisions across Suez and into the Sinai Peninsula. Wow. So we're heading towards some very, very scary, scary stuff. On the 15th, it is one day after the celebration of the anniversary of the formation of the State of Israel. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, marched through defied Jerusalem into the Arab quarters as a show of strength against the troops that were coming up in from Egypt. Wow. Oh. It's getting real scary, isn't it? Is. It is, definitely, yeah. Um, on May 16th, Nasser uh, sent a letter to Indian Army General Indar Sit Richie, and he was in charge of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Sinai, and he told them, go away. Um, on uh, on the same day, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who is the famous writer who had been put into the gulag by the Soviets, wrote an open letter signing his name against Soviet censorship, which is very brave to do. This all happened the week, the they, week were they were filming, filming Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Unbelievable. On the 17th of May, Nasser sent two MiG jets from Egypt into Israeli airspace 
to basically buzz their nuclear research facility at Dimona. Things are getting really, really scary. On May 18th, uh, Americans and South Vietnamese Army passed for the first time into across the DMZ into North Vietnam. 101 Americans were killed that day. That was the most killed in action up to that point on a single day until two days later when 102 Americans were killed. Everything's getting really, really hairy. Yeah. Here's one maybe not quite as hairy but totally bizarre is GE recalled 900,000 color TVs because they were emitting dangerous levels of x-rays <laughs> x-ray oh, radiation wow. coming out of your color tv <laughs> um tennessee repealed a law that made teaching of evolution a criminal offense this is 1967 this is a law from way back at the scopes trial they finally said no no you can teach charles darwin it's okay oh, wow. leaving uh-huh. only two states left mississippi and arkansas still outlawed the teaching of evolution Remember I told you about that letter sent to the U.N. peacekeeping force? Yes. On May 19th, the peacekeeping force left the Sinai Peninsula, leaving the way open for an Egyptian invasion of Israel. Wow. Um, And on the same day, one good thing, the Soviet Union, the U.S., and the U.K. ratified a treaty banning nuclear weapons from space. That was one week in the 60s, May of 1967. That is an insanely busy month for current events and scary scary lots going on yep that's uh, what was going on you know they're, they're driving to work or they're getting home and they're watching the the news late at night mm-hmm. after filming these episodes and these are the things that they saw on their tvs or heard, heard on the radio it's really it's really amazing because you know you, you you know we we just went through a whole big thing over the last year and a half and and this is what was going on in their lives in may of 67 um would you like to get into the show Oh, I've been waiting for this moment, honestly, since Steve and I like both agreed to move forward in doing Enterprise Incidents as a weekly podcast, deep dive on each and every episode in production order. In the back of my head, I knew that that eventually we would get to the point where we would do our deep dive on metamorphosis and hear we are. Take yes. it away, Steve. So we start off with some dramatic music, and we are on the shuttlecraft where we have Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and McCoy is examining a young woman. How is she done? Change. Small thanks to the Starfleet. So that young woman is played by Eleanor Donahue. She's playing Commissioner Nancy Hedford. Now, Eleanor Donahue is best known for Father Knows Best, where she is an Emmy nominee for Best Supporting Actress. Mm. And Eleanor Donahue is a legend. She has done so many regular shows, so many guest starring shows, and even films over the years. Just as an example, uh, she was a regular on, uh, well, obviously Father Knows Best, but The Andy Griffith Show, Many Happy Returns, The Odd Couple, Days of Our Lives, she was also a guest star in shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Different Strokes, Chips, Mork and Mindy, Happy Days, The Love Boat, Friends, Dr. Quinn, wow. Medicine Woman. And she was in the movie Pretty Woman. Now, Ralph, how did Eleanor Donahue come to play against type in Metamorphosis? Well, I, it's my understanding that uh, Gene Roddenberry called her husband, and suggested it, 
and wondered if he could call Eleanor. And I think, wasn't her husband Ackerman? That's correct. Yeah, he was a uh, studio head at Screen Jams. Yeah, he, yeah, he was a, a big executive. And anyway, so Joe D'Agosta called Eleanor and, and booked her. Joe D'Agosta was the casting director. He was the casting for, director. So what was your first, uh, the first time you met Eleanor, what was she uh, like? On the set, probably a little shy. And she has said that this was beyond and different than anything that she had done. And when performers, when directors go on to projects that are really different, you go on with assurance and a little uncertainty. And that's the way she was. But again, totally professional. Absolutely professional. I mean, she really crushed it. And uh, she she has written, no, she hasn't written, but I've seen her interview on the television archives. And she has talked about working her association with the actors. And I think she felt a little intimidated, but again, she was a professional with all those other contexts and and performances and shows that she had worked on. I mean, actors, they adjust. She adjusted pretty good. I would say, don't you think Steve? Oh, absolutely. Well, and she has to do so many interesting things in this episode. Uh, And right now what she has to do is be sick. And it's clear, clear that she's, Uh, seriously ill. And the thing I find so interesting is we've already established in season one this history of commissioners and ambassadors that are unlikable, that are at odds with the crew of the Enterprise. And she's no different. She is impatient. She's short-tempered. She's angry. She's blaming Starfleet for her disease. I was sent to Epsilon Canaris III to prevent a war, Doctor. Thanks to the inefficiency of the medical branch of the Starfleet, I've been forced to leave before my job was done. Now, a few things to note. So we are only in the teaser. We're not even in like in the first act yet, but there are a few things to note here. First of all, we see Kirk and Spock and McCoy on the shuttlecraft. Originally, the shuttlecraft was supposed to be the shuttlecraft Edison, but because they needed to reuse all of the shots of the Galileo that were done for the Galileo 7, no new shots of the Galileo were ever used again, although the the uh, the footage of the companion over the Galileo was done for this. But the Edison was the original name, so they changed it to the Galileo so they can use the stock footage that was shot for the Galileo 7. This is also the first episode where Kirk is never seen on the Enterprise. Hmm. The shuttlecraft interiors, instead of being shot on stage 10, which is where they shot everything uh, that was not on the Enterprise, especially the planet in this episode, but because the bridge was the only set on stage nine that was used for metamorphosis, they actually shot the shuttlecraft, the interior scenes of the shuttlecraft were shot on stage nine. Now, one other thing to note about the teaser here is that we're establishing that Hedford may or may not have this extremely rare disease, Securio's disease. Now, in the original versions, uh, the earlier versions of of the teleplay, Hedford did not get sick until after being marooned on the planet. Mm. It was moved to the teaser, making it the reason that Galileo was racing to the Enterprise in the first place. And it created more of a uh, race against time, which works very, very well. The other thing to note is that Ralph, Steve and I had talked about 
Devil in the Dark and Aaron of Mercy as uh, the, you know, the only demerits of those episodes are that they don't feature any real speaking parts for women. So now here comes Gene Kuhn. Not only does he create a, a, a good speaking part for women, but a great speaking part for women because to have a woman as a commissioner going to a planet to stop a war for for a TV show that was shot in 1967 was a real bold trailblazing move for its time. And when I rewatched the episode over the years, it occurred to me that Nancy Hetford is basically Hillary Clinton. That, that, that connection I never made. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I just liked directing women. <laughs> in women's roles. What what I find interesting in, in a in a strange bit of egalitarianism, Captain Kirk is just as irritated with Commissioner Hepford as he's been <laughs> with every other yes. uh, Starfleet official, regardless of gender. He's, he is clearly done with her. Commissioner, I can assure you that once we reach the Enterprise with its medical facilities, we'll have you back to your job in time for you to prevent that war. Until Spock says. Captain, check your automatic scanner. And right in that moment, just from the tone of voice, Kirk knows something is wrong. When we see uh, Spock reveal on the view screens within the shuttlecraft, we see now what, what Kirk and Spock were seeing through their, their viewfinder is that, that there's something out there in space. Now, now Ralph, I, I meant to ask you this when we were doing this side of paradise, but, but when you saw your episodes of Star Trek – when they were redone with the with the new versions of the visual effects, you know this is this is a, a new depiction of the companion in space. What did you think w- uh, about the uh, the new versions that were done with the visual effects? Getting to the time when I first saw it, my main concern at that point was the voice of the companion, and uh, the the other I accepted. I mean. It was new. I didn't know what it was going to be. I just had to shoot an angle where they could put the mat in. Earlier this year, I saw a clip on YouTube of Frank Edlund announced that he was given the assignment to create the cloud. Hmm. And he told how he did it, that he took a piece of yellow paper and then drew some colored designs on it and then took that piece of paper in front of a camera and wiggled it and photographed it, and that was that became the companion. And did you have a sense uh, when you were shooting what the companion was going to look like? No. No, I just had... Uh, but, and when we get to it, I'll tell you that some of the problems that uh, uh, were presented to me of, to, to, to avoid. But what it was going to look like, I had no idea. It was actually Richard Edlund. Yes. Uh, who who designed the companion? And ten years after Metamorphosis, Richard Edlund won an Academy Award for his work on a movie called Star Wars. So they see this thing out in space, and suddenly the they get hit, they shake, the helm doesn't answer. I love the lighting in the in the shuttle at this moment. Jim, we've got to get Miss Hedford back to the Enterprise. Condition. I know, Bones, but there's nothing I can do about it. Then I insist you make your scheduled rendezvous with the Enterprise. I love people that insist <laughs> that you do something that is actually impo- the impossible. Miss Hedford, we'll do what we can when we can. At the moment, we're helpless. You might as well sit back and enjoy the ride. 
you know, the, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, in addition to the, the lighting uh, by Finnerman here, is the score by George Dunning for this teaser is very exciting and it's very perilous, uh, very action adventure And the way that George Dunning changes the tone of the score throughout the episode, uh, it, it's, it's no wonder of course, that he'd be rehired over and over again for Star Trek because he did such a wonderful job with the score. But that does bring us to the end of the teaser. I yeah. think this is a great teaser. I agree. And it's it's a great teaser with the four people just sitting there. Agreed. Again, Jerry Finnerman didn't know what the companion was going to look like. And I'm impressed with the fact that once the lighting effects happen, the multiple colors that he uses that reflects what happened later with the design right. of the companion. Was that just good luck that they matched well? Right. Enterprise, this is the Galileo. Come in, please. Come in. The Galileo has landed. We, we try to call the Enterprise. No good, just static. We hear that we're on a planetoid. It's got an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere and capable of supporting life. And so we're going to go outside. Commissioner, if you'll stay inside. Just how long am I supposed to stay inside, Captain? That's a very good question. I wish I could answer it. I love the shot when the shuttlecraft bay door is open and and yes. out comes Kirk and out comes Spock and out comes McCoy with their phasers drawn and the camera kind of pans up. Ralph, tell us about that scene. To begin with, let's talk about that set. Yes. On this side of paradise, I think I, in fact, I know I spent three and a half days shooting exteriors, but they were locations. I think that same amount of work but it was going to be done on this very, very small soundstage. And there was going to be a psych to be the sky. And Jerry Finnerman came to me and said he would like to use purple. And I said, okay, <laughs> not realizing what a tremendous idea that was and how imaginative that he had. And he also realized that the small stage to try to give it space, uh, he introduced me to the fisheye, the nine millimeter right. lens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then also he knew what was going to happen when we used it and he prepared for it by seeing that there were rocks. So that, that first shot that we see of the shuttlecraft, we used the nine millimeter and it was seven paces from the camera. It looked like it was a football field away. Right. But because of the way it was photographing, it was not only shooting off of the top of the site, it was seeing the, the ceiling of the soundstage. Mm -hmm. And so that Jerry brought in the rocks and framed it. Amazing. Uh, it is It is an amazing shot. And then there, there's one other shot that is really impressive when there is a point of view. And again, we shot in a different direction, but they had to use the rocks on the Roddenberry vaults. Michael Okuda, mm -hmm. who I think was in charge of it, and he got rid of the rocks, filled in the sky, and it, to me, is the most exciting shot that really establishes this desolate planetoid that they are on. I mean, it was what I thought science fiction should look like. I, I got to tell you, I agree with you completely, Ralph. When when I saw the newer version with the revised visual effects that, that Michael Akuda and Denise Akuda did, yes. I thought they did a wonderful job of just, you know, making a little changes here and there without overdoing it. 
Yes. And and adding in that that beautiful purple sky as uh, Zephyr Cockrum is is supposedly in the distance, but but I'm getting the impression, Ralph, that with this episode, maybe perhaps more so than this side of paradise, this was really more of a collaboration with you and Jerry Finnerman. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and then it was a, a collaboration that then extended beyond Star Trek. We were friends till he died, as I've said. But he also was the cameraman on Planet of the Apes. I mean, it was almost like a partnership, mm-hmm. visual, a visual partnership. So a couple of things about this. I agree. I think it looks absolutely amazing. And what, what I'm so fascinated by is that you can see how it's continuing ideas that we saw first in the first season. Like all the way back in Mantrap is when I think we first sort of saw the use of a colored psych to create a different otherworldly atmosphere. But this one is pushing it so much further. And the use of the rocks and the foreground and the way that color is played with. And just you mentioned that you were on a nine millimeter lens. So just so people know, the smaller that number, the wider the lens. And what that means is you have huge size change. So someone or an object that's close to the camera will look huge and farther away they'll look tiny. And this is something obviously you see in Citizen Kane. But that's what allows this very small stage to look so big and to have so much texture and depth to it. I think that. That's a, just a great choice here. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> now George Dunning's score has taken a, a bit of a shift as Kirk and Spock and McCoy are exiting the Galileo. Instead of being so dramatic like it was in the teaser, now his score is projecting this like exploratory kind of sound. Most unusual. Unlikely. In fact, Captain. I would say quite impossible. Nothing wrong, nothing works. Precisely. And then as they're examining this, we hear, hello! No, no, he examines, and then by then McCoy has come over to them. Mm -hmm. See, this is why Ralph is the perfect co-host for us. (laughs) (laughs) You you like to be corrected. (laughs) We're being corrected. (laughs) Nancy has come out of the shuttlecraft. McCoy was standing near at the end of the shuttlecraft, saw her, and then went around the corner to give his concerns, etc. Then they heard the hello. I love the way you frame this with uh, seeing Cochran for the first time and the way he's partially like in that uh, bit of rocks in that opening. It just gives a huge sense of space and of the alien environment. It just looks great. And that angle on him is even better once the Okudas got rid of the rocks and there's that sky and he is so tiny and you really get a feeling, an establishing feeling. It's the only time we will have it of what it was like to be on that planet. And I did say on my website when I wrote about it, it was great and it just proved what we could have done if we'd had more money. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so that hello came from Glenn Corbett, who plays Zephyr Cochran in Metamorphosis. So, so Glenn Corbett was a, a series regular on TV shows like It's a Man's World, also The Road West and The Doctors. He was also in shows like 12 O'Clock High, The Virginian and Bonanza. He had passed away from lung cancer in 1993. But the name of Zephyr Cochran lived on. Certainly, the producers and writers of Star Trek The Next Generation were big fans of, of uh, Zephyr Cochran because they recast Zephyr Cochran for, for what is 
easily the best of the next generation Star Trek movies. First contact. The other thing that Glenn did was Route 66. Yeah, that's right. Route 66 was a big one for for Corbett. And Jimmy Sheldon and I, each of us shot one episode, which were really his pilot for that. Mm. Oh. When when he was replacing George. And uh, up until then, when I did my first Route 66, they were still trying to get George back. And uh, it was all legal and a lot of arguing in courts. And uh, at that point, Martin was the only one of the of the pair appearing. And then when they knew George wasn't coming back, they hired Glenn and Jimmy Sheldon shot the first episode with him in Texas. And then I did the next one still in Texas. So I knew I knew Glenn from before. So when you came to direct him in Metamorphosis, uh, what was it like working with him again? And was he like yeah, did he remember you? And oh, was yes. he? Oh, yes. Yep. And, and again, with something like that, I mean, the director knows the actor. So it, as I plan, I, I'm planning with him in mind. There's a figure. And from the actor's standpoint, like Leonard, they have the trust. What I like about his casting so much and the way he plays the part is there's a kind of down to earth, practical, old school kind of man's man kind of guy like he Mm -hmm. does seem out of a different era he does seem down to earth in this way and and so even as we're meeting him you get a sense of who this guy is and of course they're completely shocked that there's someone who seems like a human on this weird planetoid and he is shocked that they speak english you speak english earth people from the federation well, it doesn't matter. I'm Cochran. I've been marooned here who knows how long. I love that when Cochran approaches uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in Hedford, you know, he's like, wow, people, real live people. Uh, you know, he's like, can't believe his eyes. It is so happy to see other people like him. Yes. But it's an act because he knows yep. his whole thing until they get into the house and they finally get the answer. He knows all of this and he's. He's playing a lie. Yeah. I think it's clear that especially Captain Kirk knows this. He's looking at Cochran like, what is this guy doing here? Right. For for me, you just imagine he has been alone for 150 years. And then people show up. And I what I think, I think Zephyrin Cochran is an honorable, good person. But I oh, think yes. at this moment, he is so happy and desperate for these people yeah. that he lies. Yes. And one thing that's interesting that I think is interesting, particularly in relationship to First Contact, is he recognizes Spock as a Vulcan. Uh, yep, that's right. He goes, you're a Vulcan, aren't you? And of course, he knows this because because it's because of Cochrane that they had First Contact with the Vulcans. Yes. Like when you watch this episode after Star Trek First Contact came out in 1996 and you go back and watch Metamorphosis and he goes, you're a Vulcan, aren't you? And he's like, <laughs> I know what the Vulcans are, of course. Yeah. But when when Glenn Corbett first approaches the shuttlecraft, you know, he's running over and he's taking what looks like are these deep leaps, you know, these great leaps because of the uh, nine millimeter. Years later. But then when he approaches the shuttle and there's the wide shot, he takes a like maybe one or two steps too far to the right, and you see on the right side of the screen the the black uh, soundstage 
because the shuttlecraft was sort of off the stage and the camera just sort of like got a little bit of the lens flare from the lights and you could see all that for a little bit. That's because what we're seeing right now, it's full frame. For television, there was a television mat that was cutting it off so that uh, the television mat de de determined what we would shoot. When that's gone and you're seeing the full three by four, I, you know, I've never caught that. So my assumption is when, Jerry, when you were looking through the camera, there was a line, a box in the uh, viewfinder that said where television overscan was. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it, when you looked through the lens, I mean, you, you saw that map was put in the television frame and that's what you saw. So, so what? This is just a t geeky technological thing. But when, <laughs> when it, for TVs they couldn't actually say exactly where the edge of the frame was, and so TVs did what's called overscan, which is they push the image out a little bit so there is image that goes beyond the frame of the TV, and that's what uh, Ralph is talking about here. And it, and when we were doing that, we were still with the smaller television right. frame, television sets where you really didn't have a full square. It was a little bit right. ovalish, yeah. a little bit like an oval. Of course, the other thing that he has a strong reaction to is he sees a beautiful woman. Yes. Food to a starving man. All of you. And then the next thing he notices, which really is pretty much as exciting as seeing these people, is the shuttlecraft. Yes. Hey, that's a nice ship. Simple and clean. It sure is a beauty. <laughs> well, what I love about it is this guy's an engineer. This guy's a scientist. This was his life's work, and now he's seen where his life's work has gone in 150 years. Right. He's seen the fruits of his labor. Yeah. Yes. Been trying to get her to go again? Oh, well, forget it. It won't work. And there's uh, definitely more suspicion there. Yep. And and I just I just love the how the three of them, well all, all four of them actually, uh, including Hedford, they're so suspicious. Even Kirk is so suspicious oh, of Cochrane, as they should be. And even when he says, "Forget about it," it you know, it, it doesn't work down here. But he does give it a, a reason. Say we'll be unable to get the ship to function again. Not a chance. There's some sort of damping field down here. Power systems don't work. Take my word for it. Well, and then they talk about that they were brought up, brought here by something they couldn't identify, and this is the even bigger lie. Well, I wouldn't know anything about that. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> sure you would. <laughs> by the way, I'm, I'm going to say something that I said when we were talking about this side of paradise. I always love the way you frame things, Ralph, and now you have that staging with Kirk in the foreground creating that triangle with McCoy and Spock and... Uh, on the left and the commissioner on the right. And it's just this, it's very Star Trek, but it, I think you do it even more and even better than the other directors of these sort of beautiful formal stagings that you set up. So one of the things that we talked about in our, in our prep uh, for season two, Ralph, was we, we talked about how Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman decided that with the beginning of season two, that they were basically going to use these three main directors sort of revolving back and forth. And, and those three directors, of course, were you and Mark Daniels and Joseph Pevney. And one of the reasons that I feel like Star Trek really hit its stride in the beginning of the second season was because you had all of these directors who are experienced with Star Trek, who got it, who knew the routine, who knew the lay of the land, so to speak, 
And I think that's one of the reasons, like what, what Steve was talking about with that shot of, of Kirk in the foreground and Spock and McCoy in the background a little bit, you know, the framing of Kirk, Spock and McCoy and getting these reaction shots from the three of them. And did you feel, even though you were shooting now in a more confined area than you did in this side of paradise, did you feel more confident directing Star Trek the second time around? Yes. Yes. And I must tell you, I didn't know that I was part of the triad until Mark Cushman's second book came Hmm. out. Oh, those books, these are the voyages, are essential reading for Star Trek fans. But I did not know that I was that I was now considered a part of the team until then. And that was like over half a century later. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, And then again, Cochran does says two things that make the suspicion get even more. The first thing is they talk about uh, continuing to work on the shuttlecraft. And he says, right ahead. You got plenty of time. Right. That's going to make me suspicious. What about you, Cochran? How did you get here? Marooned, I told you. Look, we'll have lots of time to learn about each other. Wait, what do you mean lots of time? What what are you saying is going on here? Talks a lot, but it doesn't say much. Hmm. I've noticed something else. What's that? It looks familiar. Familiar? How did you mention he does? What about Miss Hedford? No temperature yet. But we got to get underway soon, Jim. Right. And that is what brings us to this beautiful home of Cochrane designed by Matt Jeffries. So, Ralph, uh, tell us about working with the, the legend, Matt Jeffries. Well, again, I didn't see Matt that, that much, but I have read since that the house... Uh, his inspiration for the house was a gas station. <laughs> a gas station, wow. But now, let me tell you this. The small, small soundstage, the scene that we've just seen that they did at the shuttlecraft, there were two more scenes that we shot, of course, before we would shoot out of sequence, and we'd get those done. Then the shuttlecraft and all of the dressing were struck and that same space where the shuttlecraft, that's where they put the house. Okay, right. That's right. Because you had that probably, I'm assuming that that after the scenes with Cochran and Hedford, where they first come out of the shuttlecraft, then we meet Cochran for the first time. I'm assuming that that right around that same time, you must have shot the scene where Leonard Nimoy as Spock gets zapped by the companion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In other words, you, even if we were working on, on a and a soundstage with different rooms. You would go in one room and shoot everything there at one time. You didn't move around. But in this case, we had to because uh, we had to shoot that set. And then when, when we had everything done with that set, strike it and build a new set, wow. which is the house. And then again, all of the trimmings around it. Well, the one best- of the other things about the scene. So in addition, when we go over and we walk over to, to Cochran's home, we see something really unusual for a soundstage is that we see clouds in the purple sky. So, Ralph, tell us about how those clouds came about and working with Finnerman to make that happen. Well, there again, we would shoot everything shooting toward the house, but there were those other shots where Cochrane would go out and do the, all the stuff with the 
with the companion. There wasn't enough set to do that all at the same time. We did all of the house. Then again, they struck that. Wow. And then use it, that same area, doing the angles, looking away from the house to Cochrane and the companion. And when we set that up, Jerry again had lit it. And that angle to me, again, is just incredible because it just you don't feel that that's a sight. I mean, it just does look like sky. And then Jerry said he wanted to do clouds. To do that, once he was all lit, then all of the fans in the soundstage were turned off. Doors were locked. Everybody had to stand absolutely still. The guys came in with the bee smoker, wafted some smoke up above Glenn's head, and that's what we shot. So I, I just want to highlight what, what uh, Ralph's been saying about that really this st- stage was so small that every time you finished on a, a set, you had to strike it and shoot the next thing there. And what that means is, particularly I would assume for when you were shooting Cochrane and the Companion, is that you got to really plan ahead and everybody has to know exactly what's, what's on each side of the conversation because you're doing half of the scene at one time and half of the scene much later. Um, and that's always takes a lot of brain power for people, I think. Well, uh, my scripts always looked like uh, they'd been done by a script supervisor because by the time I started a show, I had every shot in the, in the whole show planned. You still have your script from yeah. your original shooting script for Metamorphosis? Yeah. And I, I have all of them, and they're wow. going, after I leave, they're going to go to the University of Iowa. Wow. Oh, wow. That's well, amazing. if you if, if you want to give uh, your metamorphosis script to me, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I may take it with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't blame you. <laughs> um, one of the things that happens as we come up to this house is Hedford starts to stagger. And this is the first sign that she's starting to get sick. And I, I think I added that in. I, I mean, at this point, she really is. They haven't talked about her or seen her. And I just... I try to put in reminders. Right. So I did that shot of the wide shot of them going in. And then at the at the very end, when it's just Hedford and Dr. McCoy, and I do a closer shot as she staggers. And it's just a reminder. Yep. I, lo- I love the little details, too. The little clues when they look around in his house and ask, Where'd you get the antiques? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, you mean my instruments? That's our first clue about the the time that's gone. And that's also when we start to uh, get another hint about Hedford's uh, proceeding illness. When she complains about it being terribly hot and Cochran says, oh, the temperatures are comfortable 72. Do you feel hot? I love this line. This is the sign of good writing. I feel infuriated, deeply put upon and absolutely outraged. Yes. There's a rhythm to good writing. Yes, there is. And I know that Gene Kuhn was sitting there going, I need a third thing, and it needs to have this many syllables when he got to and absolutely outraged. It is a, and I, I know because I've spent so much time going, I need the third thing. Whatever, there's a specific rhythm that he's hitting that I just love. Temperature, Captain. First sign. Yes, I know. It means we're running out of time. Now, while all this is going on, Spock is standing at the doorway. To Cochran's home. He, he wasn't standing there. He was with the group, and then he moved to the door. I mean, he's logical, and he's going to start checking things out, and that's when he sees something. Captain, doctor. And you hear the fanfare, the Enterprise fanfare composed by George Dunning. Ralph, I love what you did here. Before we see what they are looking at, we see the individual reaction, and then we see what they see. 
This is our first image on the planetoid of the companion in the distance, and then it disappears. And by the way, the shot in the doorway, when we go back to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, is this picture (laughs) right here on the cover of photo novel number five, uh, which I am holding in my hands. Yes, yes, yes. I'm so excited, Ralph, to actually show you uh, uh, the cover of your photo novel for the very first time after all these years. So I'm going to have to make sure I send this to you. <laughs> and I have to say, we have certainly commented on some of the special effects that maybe were a little less up to par, you know, certainly like in Operation Annihilate, like, oh, those creatures, maybe not so good. I think the companion might be the best one of the original series. Mm-hmm. I actually think this design is really cool and still holds up because it's so different. I agree. In fact, not only... Does it hold up? Is it so different? But also with the way the the the, the shots, uh, the way that the companion, all the different colors that are moving around within the companion. You know, Steve, remember this was May of 1967. This was the summer of love <laughs> when this episode was filmed. We were just three weeks away from the release of the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So that psychedelic feel. I feel like what Richard Edlund was right, you know, uh, capturing that moment when he designed the companion. Also, uh, as we'll find out later in this episode, there might have been another inspiration for the colors of the companion uh, that that made uh, one of the one of the most moving moments of this episode, like all come together. But but I agree, Steve, I, I think the companion the, the, the original visual effect of the companion on the planet just still looks fantastic. Uh, and Cochrane continues to lie. What was that? Well, sometimes the light plays tricks on you. You'd be surprised what I've imagined I've seen around here sometimes. You'll find I have a very low tolerance level where the safety of my people are concerned. We find you out here where no human has any business being. We were virtually hijacked in space and brought here. Now, I'm not just requesting an explanation, mister. I'm demanding one. I love Shatner in this episode. He is fantastic. Yes. And Steve, Steve, we have talked many times, uh, especially these last, I would say, dozen episodes of Enterprise Incidents, how Kirk became more brash and bold, more of a soldier when Gene Kuhn took over as the showrunner. He wrote Kirk a little differently, a little more aggressive. And this is a great moment when Kirk, Kirk shows that aggression, but in this case, his aggression is most definitely warranted. It was the companion. The what? Well, that's what I call it. As a matter of fact, Captain, I uh, didn't crash here. I was brought here in my disabled ship. I was almost dead. The companion saved my life. You were injured? I was dying, Mr. Spock. I was an old man. You were what? Well, I don't know how it did it, but the companion rejuvenated me. Made me young again, like I am now. And then that's when it hits Kirk. Mr. Cochran... Do you have a first name? Zephram. It hits Kirk. Zephram Cochran of Alpha Centauri, the discoverer of the space war. And that's when McCoy says, But that's impossible. Zephram Cochran died 150 years ago. It seems that he's 237 years old at this point. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> by the way, uh, Zephram Cochran's a great name. You know, it's just a really good name. Cochrane being, you know, Lord Cochrane, who is the great captain of naval, British naval captain of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. It just sounds like this person of a different age 
You know, it's just a cool name. And that reaction to how old, who this guy is, brings us to the end of Act One. We come back in Act Two exactly at the same time, and we hear just how famous this person is. The name of Zephram Cochran is revered throughout the known galaxy. Planets were named after him. Great universities, cities. Isn't your story a little improbable, Mr. Cochran? No, it's true. I was 87 years old when I came here. Well, at this point, we also find that Hedford is now running a temperature. It started the fever. It's over 100 and it's climbing. How long do we have? A matter of hours, that's all. And we have a matter of hours. You say you can communicate with Perhaps you can find out what we're doing here. I already know. You wouldn't mind telling us. You won't like it. And I love when Kirk says, I already don't like it. I have to tell you, I really appreciated the writing of this whole, it's a long scene with five people in a very compact, small area, beautifully written. I I think Zephyrin Cochran, I think one of the things that got much better in my watching it this time more carefully is his character is really interesting and he goes through a lot of stuff. And the first one he goes through is I imagine he was 87. He already wanted to die. And then he's had 150 years by himself, like the level of loneliness that he's experienced and the joy he's got to feel when he sees these people. And now he knows he can't get away with this lie. He knows he has to tell them the truth. And the fact is, he's an honorable guy. It is not in his nature to lie. And so now he's reluctantly having to tell them that they were brought for him. He says... You're here to keep me company. You mean you brought us here? No, the companion did. I told her I'd die of loneliness. I thought it would release me. Instead, it brought you here. And at that moment, Commissioner Hedford starts to lose it. No! 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 Oh, it's disgusting! <laughs> Again, this is another example of just how wonderful and just how terrific the performance of Eleanor Donahue yes, is. Yes. You know, she has gone from being very bold and brash herself to breaking down and totally losing it. She knows that she is sick. She knows that she is dying, but she she breaks down and and McCoy takes her to the bed McCoy where she and is Kirk. able McCoy and Kirk, that's right. Boy, Ralph, I love this. You really know this episode and and are just the perfect the perfect co-host of Enterprise Incidents. <laughs> Thank um, you. Well, and, and what I think is so interesting is you have these complicated people is that she is a very difficult character and that she has this strong reaction, emotional reaction, partially because she's somewhat delirious, but to what the companion has done. And you have Cochrane who is desperate for human life but has this relationship with this thing that he calls an it, you know, these are, these are a very intimate relationship. And again, I love the way you frame this is you have Cochran come in profile in the foreground yes. and you have Spock in the background and then Kirk enters frame and you could see how, you know, these are actors all hitting their marks to set up this really nicely done image. This is when Kirk orders Spock to find a weapon. You ask me to find a weapon. Do you intend to destroy it? I intend to do whatever is necessary to get us off this planet and Commissioner Hedford to the hospital. Now, this is a moment that Steve and I have discussed at length in other 
episodes so far with, with the original series on Enterprise incidents. We don't know what it, as you so eloquently pointed out, Ralph, we don't know what it is, but we do know, or at least we think we know, that it is a threat. It is holding us here. We have to get off this planet. That means we have to destroy it. So they are at that moment, like they were in The Devil in the Dark, when there was a threat to them, and of course, in that episode, the miners themselves, and a bigger threat to the people on the other planets that depend on the mining. So they're like, we got to destroy it. If the companion stands in the way, then we push it out of the way. Clear spot. And for the first time watching this episode, when he says, clear Spock, it made me think of the moment in Devil in the Dark when Spock shows some empathy to the Horda and Kirk is starting to maybe even have a little doubt that Spock may have a different kind of motive when it comes to it. Well, I think in in our continuing exploration of who this guy, Jim Kirk, is, the thing that really (laughs) hit me this time is that it's not that Kirk doesn't have ideals. He does have ideals, but he is primarily a pragmatist. You know, there's the line and con of, you know, first order of business survival. That is what comes first. The first thing is Commissioner Hedford's going to die. We have to get off this planet. That's it. And that the ideals actually generally come second. And I, and I kind of go, and not that he doesn't have them, but I also think without Spock and McCoy, he is a really different person because Spock and McCoy continually push him to be the better version of himself. Absolutely. And we've reached a point where this is not just one of my favorite moments of metamorphosis. This is one of my favorite moments in all of Star Trek. And this is one of my, one of the great moments that has made me come to, to this very day, really admire James T. Kirk in a way where like when I was a kid, I wanted to be Jim Kirk and I still do where I felt like, and I said this many times before I would follow Captain Kirk into an active volcano. Kirk says to Cochran, you want to leave here? And Cochran says, Believe me, Captain, immortality consists largely of boredom. What's it like out there in the galaxy? And at this moment, James T. Kirk becomes Captain James T. Kirk of the Enterprise, that that idealistic, aspirational, inspirational hero with his back arched and his, his eye to the horizon. And he says, We're on a thousand planets and spreading out. And there's that really touching score supported by George Dunning at this moment to really accompany this perfect, perfect moment. We cross fantastic distances, and everything's alive, Cochrane. Life everywhere, we estimate. There are millions of planets with intelligent life. We haven't begun to map them. Interesting. How would you like to go to sleep for 150 years and wake up in a new world? And, and Ralph, do you remember filming that scene? Mm-hmm. Like just when you when you saw Shatner in a moment like this really become Captain Kirk. Well, I don't think I'd look at it that way. I remember that I did it in a profile close up with him moving. And incidentally, that speech is really kind of a preview of his speech in return to, to tomorrow. Oh my gosh, you're right. absolutely right. Well, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you, you directed Return to Tomorrow. You're right. That 
we're on a thousand planets and spreading out is is a companion, if you will, no pun intended. It's a companion of sorts to Kirk's risk yeah. is our business speech in return to tomorrow. You're, and that is another like, you know, one of the great Kirk moments yeah. is that risk is our business but speech. To go back to, to your question, in directing a scene like that, my main thing is that as he's doing it, I always feel that, that I'm by the camera and it's almost like I unzip so that I can receive whether they're doing it organic, totally unbelievable, or whether it's being acting. That's me at, at any moment during filming. That is a key directorial skill, is yeah. in all the chaos to be able to just watch the performance. And unfortunately, t- today, they don't stay by the camera looking. They're looking at a monitor. They're in a monitor. Yeah. And there's um, and I say there's a difference. <laughs> that, it's a it's a very interesting thing. There are still some directors I know who like to just stand next to the camera. But and you're right, there is a there is a difference. Well, and sometimes you're at a monitor, you know, three buildings away. Like yeah. just in a video village that's been set up somewhere. What's interesting to me about what's going on in this scene is we're talking about using a weapon against the companion. And we're balancing that against Cochrane's desire to get the hell off the planet. Oh, you know, I love the I love the line where he says, believe me, Captain, immortality consists largely of boredom. Yes. That he wants to go out where he can grow old and die and experience life. But what's interesting to me about this is I think the only way to think about, well, maybe I'll ask the question. How intimate is the relationship between Cochrane and the companion before our guys show up? 150 years, this is his only companion. How intimate is that relationship? Okay, that's a great question. Rafa, uh, do you have an answer to that first? I don't think there is a real relationship. I mean, he calls the companion if he needs something, and the companion comes, and the communication is probably telling the companion what he's going to need, but it doesn't, I don't think it goes beyond that. From from his standpoint, from the, from, the companion standpoint, as we're going to find out, as the companion is hovering over him, that's an embrace. That is a, absolutely an embrace. And I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, to answer your question, Steve, I, I think that the relationship, uh, it's it's very one sided. It's not mutual because the relationship, according to Cochrane, is one thing, like Ralph pointed out, where he calls the companion when he needs something. But the relationship that the companion has with Cochrane. The companion is showing affection. She is loving Zephram Cochran. And this has gone on for 150 years that the companion has had this love affair with Cochran that Cochran was completely oblivious to because the image of the companion was just something that he couldn't wrap his head around, not even after he has it spelled out for him, as we'll see. That that's actually a really, really great question. So I actually think I think it is far more intimate than he acknowledges. That's agreed. That's what I think. I think he is feeling a connection, but because this thing isn't human, he is dismissing it more. Because at this moment, we're talking about hurting the thing potentially hurting the thing that saved his life and kept him alive and is his only companion for the last 150 years. And he is so excited about the idea of getting the hell off the planet that I think he is minimizing the, I'll say, humanity of the companion. And I think part of what part of what hit me really strong is the slow realization by Cochrane that the creature that he is with 
is an intimate connection, that he actually does love the companion. He doesn't know it. That's what I think. Um, well, he I says, don't, that, I agree he with says you. that later. I don't yeah. want it killed. But he has to get to that point. And it's not that I would say that this is an episode exactly about you know racism or prejudice, but it is an episode about the transformation of how we see something that we didn't understand at the beginning. I completely agree with all of those points. But I also do see it not not so much about racism, a, a, a sort of in the black and white sense, but I do see it as a something is different. But it, it's an episode that that has come to resonate so much deeper now that the notion of of love is love means so much than just a relationship between a man and a woman. I will need your help to get away. You've got it. We have seen the companion outside watching him and then when they appear it disappears now that spock is over trying to fix the shuttlecraft it appears again to check it's keeping a check on spock but when we go over to where spock is by the shuttlecraft spock is trying to but try and find the weapon he's using a device in his hand and the companion materializes next to next to spock this is an amazing effect that uses uh, a lockdown, I'm assuming, for a camera. And then when Spock sees it and holds his hand out, it's going to show its power. And Leonard is, is, is terrific in his uh, performance here, the way he's using his hand and his arm to kind of move his hand through the energy field of the companion. And the companion reacts in a violent manner and zaps Spock with a, an electric shock that destroys the electronic device in his hand and it explodes after Nimoy kind of tosses it from his hand, which I'm assuming must have been choreographed. Do you re- what do you remember about filming the scene, well, Ralph? I have read since that Stan Robertson during the development of the script at one point asked for another action sequence and that they added Mm. this and this was a bonus because it's going to show its power just to let them not know that they're not fooling around with kids so stan robertson that you mentioned is the standards and practices uh programmer at nbc who was who was in charge of star trek and who was who was giving the producers and the writers of Star Trek feedback with all of the screenplays. Yes. And, and you're right. He, he was initially concerned earlier on that there was not enough action in this episode. And this, and this scene was definitely added because of the other thing that's interesting about the scene, this, this, uh, the scene, uh, gentlemen, is that there was another member of the uh, away team that uh, yeah. was Scotty. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yes. Scotty was supposed to be part of the away team and Sulu was supposed to be in command of the Enterprise looking for the landing party, so to speak. And in this episode, it was supposed to be Scotty who got zapped Hmm. by the companion. But it was uh, decided that because Scotty already got zapped in other screenplays by by Apollo in Who Mourns for Outer Nights and by Nomad, in the changeling, it was Gene Kuhn made the change at the suggestion of Dorothy Fontana to put Scotty in command of the Enterprise and change the zap to Spock instead. And I have to say, 
for a lot of reasons, including the fact that we're seeing Jimmy Dewan and Scotty really, wonderful. really wonderful. Uh, he's wonderful in this episode. Yeah. And, and, and we're, we're really seeing uh, uh, in terms of Star Trek hitting its stride. I think that Scotty, Jimmy Dewan is also hitting his stride uh, in, in the beginning of season two. And I also think that the landing party of the four is better than if it had been five. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And right now we're back uh, with McCoy examining Hedford. And and again, Ralph, you do one of these camera moves I love, which is the camera dollies back and in comes Cochran and Kirk uh, into positions for their conversations. They're just all really dynamic for me. And now we have the idea, well, if the companion is so powerful, maybe it can help Commissioner Hedford. We've got to try. We're helpless. See if it can do something. It's very subtle. But as Cochran exits the room to summon the companion, Kirk looks at McCoy while Hedford is on the bed and she is in pain and suffering. And he looks at McCoy and he turns back to the camera and shakes his head. And you could just see that the concern is really weighing heavily on Kirk. And I think that the subtlety that Shatner added to this moment really adds so much to his character. Yes, yes. I completely agree. Because when they come outside and you see the three of them, as, as Cochran exits and then Kirk and McCoy take their position, and then we cut to the uh, to seeing Cock take his position, again, that was done at, later after we had struck the house. Right, because you had to tear down wow. the set. The producers asked me, if I could try to avoid using a moving mat, if I were to shoot just a wide shot of Kirk and bring the mat in at the left end of the frame and then move it across the screen, that would be a moving mat. So what I did oh, was I, I filmed a closer angle, full figure of, of Cochran, established him and then panned over to the left, held so they could put the mat in, then moved it back, and they had framed it so that when it got back, it was covering Kirk. Uh, Cochran. Uh, Cochran. Cochran, I mean, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful shot, actually. Yeah. You know, the way uh, the companion appears and the camera pans to the right, and then you see the companion in that in that classic image yeah. covering Cochran. Yes. Yes. Um, and you have to do it that way to make the effects simpler for them to do. Well, to make it cheaper. Cheaper, yeah. But it, and going back to, to the budget, I think that the special effects are one of the, probably the major reason that this show was over budget because it was done in six days. There weren't that many people in the cast. There, there right. were the five on the planetoid, the, the three major ones on the Enterprise, and there weren't we, uh, there, there were only two or three crew people, so the cast itself had to have been cheaper. So I, I'm yeah. sure it was the special effects that blew up the, the budget. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting about this moment where the companion comes, it envelops Cochrane, we're watching, is this really shows to me the power of music. Because if you compare this to Devil in the Dark, Devil in the Dark essentially structurally is a horror movie. And so the perception of the creature, of the Horda, in that is that it's scary. Well, here, 
the music is giving you all the clues you need because the music, in fact, is kind of romantic and soft mm. and mm-hmm. gentle. And so that, even though Kirk is still kind of on the I might have to kill this thing, we know, we don't, this is not a horror movie. This is not an enemy. We already know that. And the music is telling us that in the Steve, score. Steve, you bring up an excellent point because at the top of this conversation, I remarked, uh, in my in my uh, love for Metamorphosis, how it represents such a shift in tone, and this moment right here that you're describing, this romance, this uh, this, this the score uh, uh, accompaniment by by George Dunning, the shift is starting to take place where the the hint of the of the love is coming, and when the companion moves over to cover Cochrane. And there's that beautiful score by George Dunning. And again, the cinematography with with the lighting of the sky and of the set from Finnerman. Ross, what do you make of that? Almost uh, symbiosis of some kind. Sort of joining, exactly what I think. And Shatner's delivery when he says... More like love. It's beautiful. Can I, can I say something, Scott, that you will not like? Uh-oh. I, would, I don't like that line. I think that line is too early. I think that's, A, it's a big intuitive leap, and I wish they didn't use the word love. I like that they say, you know, that there is a joining here. It's a symbiosis. It's not like a pet owner speaking to a beloved. I like that they're seeing something, but I wish they hadn't said love until later. That's that. That's my opinion. I think I, I know you disagree. Steve, and Steve, I think I agree with you because it's later when I think it's when Spock is standing beside him, and they say right out that it that it is love. I agree that it, it, it's coming a little early. Well, uh, okay. I wanted to say to both you guys, I see your points, yeah. and and it's not something. It's a point that I never really considered because. I just am so deeply moved yeah. by this moment because it's just so oh, effective. And, and, and I, I, I agree with you guys. I think that that it's a little redundant when when the three of them are together and, you know, they, they have the translator this time. Yes. And uh, and Kirk comments that it's a lover. That would have been That's when the it moment should have come for the first time. Well, that's and, when it should have come for and, the first and time. And because Kirk is about to try to kill it. And so if the fact that he said that the fact that we understand so much about what they're seeing actually lessens that next thing that's happening. And this is why the connection to Devil in the Dark is so strong, because it's how you bring out the clues. And at what level do we what moment do we discover what thing? Right. You know, well, I, I got to say, I, I never in 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 all these years since I was a little kid watching Metamorphosis to this moment. Uh, never, never thought about that. About that, the word love came a little too soon in this episode, but, but I do agree with you. I think after all this, uh, this, this reflection on it that I've done over these years, I agree with you. I think you're right. Um, but, but it, and you really don't have to add anything else. When, when, when Kirk says, he just says, "No, it's more than that." Exactly. And I've seen it. And, and then you stop. You stop. Yeah. Yep. You're right. You're right. Are you all right? Yes. It uh, kind of drains me a little. But I'm all right. 
The reason it takes so much out of him is because there's there's more of an act going on here on the part of the companion that Cochrane has never come to understand, but he will very, very soon. Well, the companion can't do anything to help Miss Hedford. So here's my question. If the companion was able to help Cochrane stop him from aging and reverse the aging process, why wasn't the companion able to help Hedford uh, and stop her from dying from this disease? Was it the compa- was it because the companion couldn't help Hedford, or because the companion wouldn't help Hedford? There's a difference. You think it's wouldn't, Steve? I don't know. I'm thinking mm. about it. I've always thought it was couldn't, and because I'm going well. The companion's motivation is I want to keep Cochran here and happy. Right. So how much does the companion know about male and female and gender? How much does the companion know about how happy Cochran is that there's a pretty woman on the planet? Is the companion, in fact, jealous of Hedford in that sense? That's my point. Yeah. And so so like I hadn't considered all of that stuff. That's a much more... That is a strong choice. It's also a much more negative choice, but I think it's kind of interesting. I think you could motivate that. And, you know, so again, it's showing from the companion standpoint, power. Mm. Absolutely. I, 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 again, rewatching this episode in, in the context of our, of the way we are looking at this entire series, it, it did make me for the first time, I thought, well, because I also, I, I always used to wonder why. I don't get why the companion could help uh, Cochran, but not Hedford. But then I started to think maybe there is some jealousy going on here. Maybe the companion does understand enough about, even though Kirk does explain a lot to the companion about love between a, you know, a man and a woman. uh, So maybe the companion doesn't understand the, the, the man and the male and female sense, but the companion might know enough to know, wait a minute, uh, I mean, I know that that Cochran needs companionship here, but I know what she represents. And and the companion was most likely aware that Cochran was showing attention to Hedford and was maybe a little threatened by that. So that's why I've started to gravitate towards that the companion wouldn't hmm. help Hedford. And that's why. And that does make the companion a complex life form with complex sure, emotions. Sure. And let me add one more thing too, is that, that on this scene again, before we could do it, we had to close down everything. Everybody stand still and put in the clouds. We're back at the shuttle where McCoy finds Spock who is coming back from consciousness. Uh, and, I, and again, I, lo- I love the way this line is written. A most fascinating thing happened. Apparently the companion imparted to me a rather quaint, old-fashioned electric shock of respectable voltage. <laughs> <laughs> That's just well-written. I just like the line. His, and I, I love his delivery. Oh, I yeah. love his performance. Like, he's like, you know, he's not in, in any kind of shock, so to speak, oh, from no. being zapped oh, by the no. companion. He's he's fascinated with the facts. He's like kind of like, oh, oh like, yeah, like he, wow. he looks at his... He's like, cool. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, he admires it. And McCoy goes, I'm not a scientist or a physicist, Mr. Spock, but am I correct in assuming that anything that generates electricity can be shorted out? 
Quite correct, Doctor. And now we're back at the house, and we're setting up to use this piece of equipment. And Spock says, Put this in the proximity of the companion. Throw this switch, and it will scramble every electrical impulse the creature can produce. It cannot fail. And I'm like, uh, Spock, you don't know that. <laughs> like, <laughs> that seems like a big leap. Um, and then this is the moment, again, this is where Cochran became a much more complicated character to me. Because... <laughs> Before, he said he just wants to get off the planet. And now that we're getting closer to actually hurting the companion, he's having some second thoughts. The companion saved my life. It's taken care of me all these years. And this is the key line. This is where I go. It's more intimate, his relationship, than what he thought. We've been very close in a way that's hard to explain. I suppose I even have a sort of affection for it. 150 years, he didn't know that... This was a relationship that was love, and he's and only now. I, mean, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I, I, I don't think it's love. I, what do you think it is, Ralph? This is just smoke clouds that are around him. Obviously, the fact that he can call it it's a being, but he can't put a, a name on it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. whatever it is, he doesn't want to see it destroyed because it, it has taken care of him. I don't want it killed. May simply render it powerless. But you don't know. You could kill it. This is how we see Kirk at his, you know, his boldest and his brashest yes. when he says, We're getting out of here, Cochran. Face up to it. I'll do anything I have to to save all of our lives. Right before Cochran goes to call the companion as he is walking out the door. What was it they used to call it? The Judas goat? What a bold statement to make steve i i actually thought of you steve um i mean do you know what a judas goat is that's why i'm yeah. asking yeah a, a judas goat is an animal that would make friends with the other animals and would lead them to the slaughterhouse that would so the animal the cows or whatever would feel comfortable and the judas goat would stick with these animals and guide them to the slaughterhouse for them to be killed. So yeah, it's a heavy, it's a heavy line. To get back to what we were talking before, I mean, we're seeing what is from Cochrane's standpoint, it's just a puff of smoke that surrounds him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, except I think, I think Cochrane's in a whole bunch of denial. I think he's con- really confused. And this mm. is a guy who 150 years ago was probably never confused. This is a guy who always knew what he's doing. But after 150 years of isolation, these people show up and he immediately lies to them because he's so happy and desperate to see them. And then he tells them the truth and he's wrestling with, do I risk hurting or even killing this thing that saved my life? And I think he can't see how much the companion means to him. I mm-hmm, think that mm-hmm. I think that line of We've been very close in a way that's hard to explain. I think there is an intimate connection here that he's in a bit of denial about. And he's desperate to get off this damn planet. And so he allows himself to do a thing that is a betrayal. And he knows it's a betrayal. And he still is going to do it. There is some risk, Captain. We do not know the extent of its powers. And Kirk really misjudges the situation <laughs> and says Nor eight hours. and that type of ego about their place in this galaxy with their power on the starship enterprise exploring new worlds and everything they are about to learn another lesson 
that there are other beings out there in the universe that have far greater powers than they do. And when Spock flips on the switch and the companion gives Cochrane a jolt and the companion makes its way to Cochrane's home and envelops the home and starts choking Spock and Kirk. And they are writhing around in pain. Uh, another action scene that I'm sure Stan Robertson was uh, was relieved to see. Stop it! You're killing them! Ralph, what do you remember about the filming of this scene? After Cochrane is thrown to the ground, that's a moving mat as it starts to move toward Mm, house. Mm, yeah. Mm. And that shot is really dramatic. Yeah. And I think something was earned by this kind of romantic soft music about the companion <laughs> because now in this scene, suddenly the companion is really scary. Yes. And I think part of that happens because of the contrast with how we felt about it before. Oh, absolutely. And again, the, the two guys in the room, Kirk and Spock, they're just writhing around. They, they don't have any visual effect. They don't have any music. They're just writhing around on the floor, both in a wide shot and individual close-ups, and the mat will be laid in later, and that one will just be a... A, a static a, one. A standing matter will yeah. have to be moving. Yeah. Well, and I think what really sells it is DeForest Kelly's performance. I think his desperation oh, sure. is what Agreed. really is selling the thing. And th- Absolutely great. And that's the end of Act 2. We come back right to the same spot. Stop it, please! Stop it! You're choking them! And finally, Cochrane gets up, takes back his position, and the companion moves off of them, changes color, and then the music becomes romantic again. It's another beautiful moment to behold. When the companion moves back to Cochrane, it is a moment where the companion is, she's being soothed, comforted, right? Yes. And as Kirk comes to, and he's standing in the door, Shatner is so great. Such a great performance in the scene. He is feeling the burden of command, not just being responsible for his, the four lives on this planet, but for his ship up there that we haven't even seen yet. How do you fight a thing like that? Got a ship up there somewhere? Responsibility of four lives down here? One of them dying because of me? Isn't your fault. I'm in command, Bones. It makes it my fault. How do you fight a thing like that? And I love McCoy's response. Yes. Maybe you're a soldier so often that you forget you're also trying to be a diplomat. And the camera zooms in to Kirk and Shatner gets it. Like he has this epiphany, this light goes on and he has a smile on his face. And that's when Kirk starts to change his approach. Now, Steve Morris. Yes. When McCoy says that line to Kirk, what, what episode did you think of? Aaron of Mercy. Thank you, sir. Why? Because you brought it up when we discussed Aaron of Mercy. (laughs) (laughs) 
I probably would have anyway. Uh, but that idea of the difference between a diplomat and a soldier definitely comes up in that episode. I also think it's just just something of, of like why Star Trek was so profound for me is that characters who already know the right things to do don't teach of us as much as characters who learn the right things to do in the course of a dramatic episode. That's what really teaches you the lesson is because Kirk has to learn the lesson, you know? And that, by the way, and that is exactly what I love about Star Trek. And that is what we have said all this time, Steve and Ralph, is that Star Trek is always about the striving, the striving for the betterment of humanity, because we are constantly learning. We are still learning new things, not just about what's out there, but we are learning new things about each other. And at this moment, some of our some of our favorite moments that Steve and I have had on Enterprise Incidents are when we see these characters, our heroes, especially James Kirk, learn from his mistakes and change his approach. And that moment when he smiles and and Ralph, when the camera moves in to Shatner and he lets out that that sort of light smile, like, I mean, Shatner is the man. <laughs> I just think he's awesome. <laughs> well, and there's the little bit of the main theme that plays underneath when that happens. Um just that little bit of music, I think, helps the moment a lot. Oh, and, and this is what gives the moment of Kirk rethinking. And instead of a weapon, he asks Spock about the universal translator. And, and this moment reminds me of City on the Edge of Forever. Spock initially is going, well, that would be hard to do. Adjust it. Change it. The trouble with immortality is it's boring. Adjusting the translator will give you something to do. It's possible. If I could widen its pattern of reception. Right down your alley, Spock. Get it here and get to work. You know, we've talked so much uh, here on the show about how empathy, sympathy, learning, all that comes through communication. Yes, absolutely. Okay. In arena, you've got this battle between Kirk and the Gorn where there's the, uh, the sort of, uh, Oh Henry moments that flips it over where you realize that the Gorn were not invading our territory. We were invading theirs. And at the end, the communication that we can talk and maybe something will come out of this. In Devil in the Dark, it is communication which helps us understand and which helps save the day when Spock does the mind meld with the Horta, which is another episode written by Gene Kuhn that Ralph, you almost directed. And I have to say, I uh, just want to take this moment to say that on Ralph's website, there is a blog about how Ralph would have directed the devil in the dark had he stuck with that and i highly recommend you all read that and where can people find that ralph sinensky.com sinensky.com and now here in this episode communication is once again the turning point that helps us understand and empathize and solve the problem a message communication is so important to stopping violence. And this is just another great Star Trek episode that makes that message loud and clear. 100% agree. And now we get to, for the first time in the episode, go to the Enterprise. Da, da, da. Ship's log, Stardate 3219.8. Lieutenant Commander Scott recording in the absence of Captain Kirk. So in this side of paradise, Ralph, we, we don't see 
Scotty. We don't see James doing. We only hear his name when Kirk is alone on the bridge calling down to engineering for him. But now, Ralph, you got to direct James Doohan in Star Trek, and you got to direct his scenes on the bridge when he is he is in temporary command of the Enterprise. What was it like working with the great Jimmy Doohan? For this scene, I just have such admiration for all three of them, for Doohan, Michelle, and for George, because just their performance is so real, so subdued. I mean, they're not acting. And yeah. beside giving out the information, each one of them incorporated it into their performance that there is concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all great in that scene. It's very understated, but it does grow during the scene until... If there are no further traces, how are we going to follow them? We stay on this course, see what comes up. It's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. <laughs> I love the line, and I love her delivery. I do, too, and I love I love Dewan's eye at the end. Yes. I, oh, I, and I, then he says, eye. <laughs> the two shot, and then as she moves away, the camera pushes in on him, and he just mm-hmm. turns back into the camera, and the eye says so much about the concern and that mm-hmm. he's fearful of what he's going to find and not I, find. I think this scene, I mean, this is not a deep or profound scene in any way, but no. it, I think it does show what Nichelle Nichols can do when she can step away oh. from that chair and and actually participate in the scene. And I mm-hmm. also think it shows so much about Scotty's character that he is practical. He is going to go through the steps methodically, and he is not going to give up. He's not going to quit. He doesn't have the genius of James T. Kirk, but he is a solid person that you mm-hmm. want in your corner. And the other thing, Steve, is is that uh, not only is he a solid person to have in your corner and to command the Enterprise while Kirk and Spock are away, but I, I feel like there's so much more confidence in Jimmy Dewan's performance as Scotty commanding the Enterprise. You know, when we saw him in command of the Enterprise in episodes like Return of the Archons, but with with uh, with Metamorphosis and definitely with the next episode, Friday's Child, I feel like there's there's more confidence in, in Dewan's performance as he is in, in, in command. And and I've said this many times, and I'm going to say it again, that, that James Dewan, even though he was definitely utilized perfectly in the original series, he is definitely one of the finest actors in Star Trek. And, and he is just so, so terrific in, in moments like this. And let me say something about George, because he doesn't have any part of the more personal material that Jimmy and Michelle had, but he is just so good within just his relating of the facts of this, that there is the concern. He's an underrated actor too. Spock is explaining the universal con- translator to Zephyrin Cochran, and I think this is our first real mention of the universal translator isn't it that is correct my friend this is the first appearance the first time that the universal translator is mentioned and now we see kirk really trying a different approach to the whole thing and he's like when spock gives him the translator which uh, definitely looks a whole lot better than that microphone that McCoy was using in court martial, <laughs> you know, um, it looks like a translator. He, he, he's given the translator, puts it in his hand. He stands up straight, arches his back and says, Mr. Cochran, call the companion. 
but with a long pause before he says well, it. This is the moment of truth for Kirk to to do some damage control here and and communicate. Companion, we wish to talk to you. A film critic had this to say about this scene. Everything that you've seen up to this point is an urgent drama that they're in a race against time. Right here at this moment, the entire tone of this episode completely flips. The beautiful touch of the companions moving off of Cochrane as he hears Kirk try to address it. It is a voice. It is a female. And you know who wrote that? Who wrote that, Ralph? Scott Mance. Ralph, for you to read back my words of, of, of this absolutely seminal moment of metamorphosis, if you would have told this six-year-old kid that one day the director of what would turn out to be his favorite episode would remember this moment when I, when I wrote this and read it back to me during a podcast that I was hosting with my great friend, Steve Morris, I never would have believed it. And I am truly, truly touched that you remembered that enough to, to read those words back to me. I cannot thank you enough. I have it on my website. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty cool, Ralph. That's really, that's lovely. Did you know, as I was reading it, that, that I was reading your words? Uh, as you got halfway through it, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that definitely sounds familiar. How can we communicate my thoughts? You are hearing them. When the companion hears this voice, and there's that beautiful touch when the companion moves off of Cochran. And Cochran, like, looks at the companion, looks back at Kirk, like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And the camera zooms onto Glenn Corbett, onto Cochrane, and he is shocked. This is interesting. Feminine. No doubt about it, Spock. Yes. The matter of gender could change the entire situation. Way ahead. And you're right. The, the moment that we heard Kirk say before, we are hearing it and seeing it all play out in action. George Dunning's score, his musical accompaniment for this moment... Every single time I watch this episode, when we get to this moment, I get so overcome with emotion. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of this episode, and even just a few minutes ago, we are at a moment of peril when the companion is strangling Kirk and Spock. And now there's this beautiful moment, this epiphany. It's the moment, like in Devil in the Dark, when Kirk gets to the Chamber of the Ages and he sees the hatched eggs of the Horde and realizes, wait a minute. But this is so much more powerful because this is a love story. This is a love story. It is not a zookeeper. No. A lover. It just gets me every time, (laughs) gentlemen. It really does. Beautiful writing, too. Absolutely. Uh, several things about this. First of all, I think the voice performance is great. The which, the voice performance of the companion. Of and do you know? Do you know the story there? I was going to. No, I do. I gonna, but Ralph, you're going to tell us the story. Should I tell it now or later when we get to the other? Tell it now. <laughs> well, when we had the first screening with everything put together, 
And when we got to this scene, I was seeing the companion, the mat, for the first time. And the voice of the companion was a robotic monotone mm. all the way through this scene. And, of course, the even more powerful second talk between Kirk and the companion. And at the end, I just I said, it's not acceptable. That's not right. And there was nobody that disagreed with me. And then I remembered a little over a year before I had done one of the FBI's that I did. I had an actress. We only worked one day on location, a very small scene. Uh, She was in a car driving. And then when she pulled into the motel with Don Quine and had just a couple of lines, but she was very much like a young Patricia Neal and had that sultry voice of Patricia Neal. And so we cast her, brought her in. I went on to the dubbing stage, and then we did those lines, one just one line at a time, and through the two scenes. And that's the line that was put back in. So the actress who was eventually did the voice of the companion is Elizabeth Rogers. Yes. Okay, so Elizabeth Rogers, Steve... But, but, will, no, no, but she didn't do what we're hearing here. So, so the the it, voice, the, the robot. In the, the, she did the first the robotic monotone. This I never quite under understood why, for a scene that important, they wouldn't have called me in to do it. And so somebody so, from the staff, and I don't know who, was in charge of the the recording, so that I when I replaced. I I didn't want to bring her back in because I didn't know her and I didn't know whether she could do what I wanted done. So that was why I I got Elizabeth Hush. But to this day, I'm the only person that has ever told us the UCLA archives still have uh, Elizabeth Rogers listed as doing the companion. All right. So, so just to, just to, to, to clear and set the record straight. The voice that we hear in this episode that we have heard for these last almost 55 years now is not Elizabeth Rogers. You're correct. It is a, it is Elizabeth Hush. Liz, Elizabeth Hush is the actual name yes. of the actor who did the voice of the companion. For all these years, she was misidentified as Elizabeth Rogers. It, it, because Elizabeth Rogers was the one who did the first one, and she's obviously in the studio records. She's in the studio records uh, for two other episodes that she actually I know, had. I know, I know. She could because she played Lieutenant Palmer, the communications officer in both the Doomsday Machine and the Way to Eden. I learned that later. Wow, this is uh, this is amazing to learn that after all these years that the records didn't have all yeah. the information correctly, and that Elizabeth Hutch. Is, is that the, not is the, Elizabeth? Just L Elizabeth L I S A D E T H. And I I told this story to Mark Cushman, and he didn't use it in his book. He keeps Elizabeth Hush. So the record has been set straight after wow. all this time. Yes. Elizabeth Hush is the voice that you hear of the companion. But here's the other big revelation that I discovered five years ago when I was uh, doing interviews for the Roddenberry Vault. Now, for everyone who who does not have the Roddenberry Vault, 
you're missing out because the Roddenberry Vault, it is fantastic. It is the holy grail for fans of the original Star Trek because it is documentary series of deleted scenes and alternate takes that have not been seen for more than, well, 50 years. And many of those scenes came from Metamorphosis. And the big revelation for me at the time was that when William Shatner was filming the scenes, when Kirk is trying to reason with the companion, the actress offstage, whose voice you hear on the camera, the unused scenes during the raw footage, Steve, the voice of the companion was actually Eleanor Donahue herself. Sitting on, makes a, sense. on a low, on a small ladder, right by the camera, and Bill, who who is looking, you know, at this area with Cochrane and the cloud. The camera was four feet from him. The right side of the camera was a ladder with Eleanor with a script in her hand, and that's what Shatner was playing against. I got a question. Why didn't Eleanor Donahue in the end provide? Oh, I guess she couldn't do the voice because she was head first. Yes, yes. And yes, that, that yes, wouldn't have worked. Yes, yes. yes. Gotcha. Yes. I think the voice performance is so great because you found such a good balance between. It's dyna- she's dynamite. Because it's someone who has never spoken, has really profound emotions, but that all has to be kind of controlled. It's a really good balance between all of those things that you did. And Steve, can you imagine hearing those words said like this in a monotone like this? It would ruin it. Yeah, it would ruin it. I mean, it was, it was painful. I got to say, Steve, you bring up a great point because the way that Elizabeth Hutch voiced the companion, there's more emotion in her voice, but there is also... Like she's learning how to talk. She's learning yeah. how to communicate in a different way for the first time. I, if I was going to have a conversation with someone in Spanish after, you know, sort of just learning how to talk to Spanish, there would be pauses. There would be like, I'm trying to find the right words to use. And that's what Elizabeth Hutch, that's sort of the the performance that she gives with her vocal performance as the companion. She's perfect. The man needs others of his species. That is why you are here. The man must continue. The other thing I was thinking about the companion, I think this might be, in a weird way, the clearest example of completely unconditional love I've ever seen on film. And I the, agree. And the reason is, is because she, the companion is not saying, I love this person. The companion is saying, he must continue. There's no ambiguity in what the companion feels about the man the man will go on he must every it's it's as if everything about the companion's existence has focused now on this person in a way that and what's so interesting to me is the companion is going to choose human love but i don't think humans love the way the companion does Oh, I agree. There is a, I, I have a, it's not a criticism exactly. What Kirk is trying to say is a classic Kirk philosophy, which is that we can't just live here. We have to struggle. We have to have challenges. We have to, or we will cease to exist. I don't like the, how many times you use the term cease to exist, because I think there were better words that could have been found for the concept, because it isn't that their bodies will stop living. It's that their spirit will die. And that's that's a hard concept to get across 
and I and I just feel like I wish there were some other words we were using. That's that's just how I feel. Your bodies have stopped their peculiar degeneration. There will be nothing to harm you. Which, by the way, made me realize, Ralph, that you directed two episodes where the crew of the Enterprise are completely healed by going to some planet. Steve, I want to bring up something you just said, where you were talking about how humans need obstacles to overcome in order to live and thrive and flourish. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is classic, classic Star Trek philosophy. Classic Star Trek philosophy. The Captain Kirk, who was telling the companion that mankind needs obstacles in order to survive, is the same Captain Kirk who decided and figured out how to counteract the spores Mm -hmm. and bring his crew back from Omicron SETI 3 because they were not going to flourish without obstacles to overcome. And of course, they weren't even acting on their own free will. But that's a whole other conversation. But this is this is, you know, watching Metamorphosis again for for this podcast. It made me see things about this episode, which I've seen hundreds of times in a whole new light. Here's the other thing that I realized while watching Metamorphosis. While Kirk is trying to reason with the companion for the for the first time, Spock steps forward and says to the captain in the middle of his conversation. This is a marvelous opportunity to add to our knowledge. Ask it about its nature, its history. This isn't a classroom. I'm trying to get us out of here. A chance like this may never come again. It could tell us so much. This isn't the time. Shatner is not generally known for being restrained. Understatement. (laughs) Yes. But in this episode, he shows the restraint at just the right moments, and this is one of them. But, Steve, this is the other moment, the other revelation that I had rewatching Metamorphosis. So here you have Spock stepping forward with another motive, one that is different from that of Kirk's. Didn't that that remind you of, of another scene from another episode, actually two other episodes, written by Gene Kuhn? Well, de- definitely Devil in the Dark. Correct. Um, and there's several. I mean, there's Arena, too. Correct. Yeah. Those are the two. Yeah. Those are the two that I have written down right here, my friend. Well, and this is why I say is like this is the epiphany that I had is that oh, Kirk has ideals, but he is first a pragmatist. First, first we got to survive. We got to get off the planet. I would love to. He would love to do some scientific exploration, but we got to do this first. But really, it's it's Kirk who shuts Spock down for the moment. For the moment, mm-hmm. because when they are chasing after the Gorn in arena. And, and Spock suggests to Kirk, you know, maybe we should just, you know, maybe the pursuit alone will be enough to scare the Gorn. And Kirk shuts him down. There's no time for that. And then in Devil in the Dark, when, when Kirk is, is briefing his security detail about killing the Horda, Spock says, no, we're going to capture it. And Kirk says, your orders are shoot to kill. We're establishing a pattern between the characters, you know, in moments like this, they actually are very, very different people. Well, and throughout the series, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are all wrong many times. Many times. They all need mm-hmm. each other. Um, and and I like that as Kirk tries to sell this thing about ceasing to exist. And you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe actually cease to exist is a good phrase because the companion 
isn't convinced by it, doesn't get it. It doesn't make sense. She says, Your impulses are illogical. This communication is useless. The man must continue. Therefore, you will continue. And that's it. And the companion is gone. Um, and then this reaction is so interesting. Cochrane comes back and asks, Why did you build a translator with a feminine voice? We didn't. But I heard the idea of male and female are universal constants, Cochrane. I actually don't think that's true, but I think that that is what the mm. Star Trek thinks is true at this point. There's no doubt about it. The companion is female. I don't understand. I love McCoy's line. You don't? A blind man could see it with a cane. You're not a pet. You're not a specimen kept in a cage. You're a lover. And Cochrane's reaction is so unexpected, I think, and so human. It's great. I'm a what? It's a great reaction, and it is also one that just shows how how different these people are from their own time periods, how how Cochrane is disgusted by the prospect of being made love by this alien force. For all these years, I've let something as alien as that crawl around inside me, into my mind, my feelings. And Kirk and Spock and McCoy treat their love affair in such a casual manner. What are you complaining about? It kept you alive, didn't it? And it's also, I got to say, for, for an episode that was produced and aired in 1967, for, for these, three, these three people to treat just a, an interracial romance in such a casual way, it was a very progressive approach. I hadn't really thought about it until watching it this time. But this time, it hit me so hard. And his reaction of really pure disgust at this moment. And I do understand it. This is why I say, like, I think this relationship was way more intimate than yeah. Cochran really realized. I think he was, I think he knew it. And I think he was in denial. And this moment of going, Oh, it was an alien. That thing fed on me. Use me. It's disgusting. There's nothing disgusting about it. It's just another life form. That's all. You get used to those things. It's so casual. It's like, I'm so proud that they thought that way for when this was written, that it was written that way. Right. Now, today, where we've had such a great expansion and such a great education about love, not just between man and woman, but between same sex, between transgender, uh, uh, not binary, uh, interracial, the notion of love has been expanded in so much. And that's one of the reasons that metamorphosis has come to resonate yes. so much deeper. What do you think of that, Ralph? Well, again, characters are in the 23rd century, but Cochrane is really in the 20th century. I'm not sure that I can say anything beyond what what, what has, has been discussed because it's like it should be. And that was why Star Trek and why this episode. And at one point, yes, I, I, I brought up a long time ago that I wondered if it was Gene Kuhn's attempt to do a racial story. And on one of my, the comments left on one of my posts for metamorphosis somebody thought that it was a way to do a story about same sex mm -hmm. mm. Mm. your highly emotional reaction is most illogical your relationship with the companion has for 150 years been emotionally satisfying eminently practical and totally harmless 
It's the same thing. It's the three things and the right number of syllables makes it a good line. <laughs> um, and then he says, Is this what the future holds? Men who have no notion of decency or morality? Well, maybe I'm 150 years out of style, but I'm not going to be fodder for any inhuman monster. And Spock's line. Fascinating. A totally parochial attitude. I think this is so great. And this is where I go. It, this really is about race or this is about uh, gay relationships. Because if you think about if you took someone out of the mid 60s and put them today and looking at what the world is like, there would be a lot of things where they would have this parochial attitude. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Is that the world has changed between Cochrane and our guys on the Enterprise, and so he needs to evolve with it. And I never saw any of that in this episode until this last time. In the other room, while Hedford is dying, but she has heard everything that has happened. He was loved, and he resents it. She is telling him how I basically have squandered my life. I've been good at my job, but... I've never been loved. Never. What kind of life is that? And this man has this kind of love, and he rejects it. And she is, she is nearing the end of her life, realizing that her chance to have that kind of love is gone. She never will have had it. And she turns away from McCoy to her side and cries facing the camera. And when I was watching this, and we're again, we're still in the midst of a 50-minute episode, and I realize that Eleanor Donahue is giving a performance for a lifetime, and it's all in the course of one TV series episode. The, the range that she is displaying with this performance, she's wonderful in this episode, Ralph. Yes, and not only this episode, but in this one scene that is capping performance. It's a scene and a performance comparable to Louise Reiner's telephone call in the great Ziegfeld. Mm. It was just a telephone call, and she won an Oscar. Yeah. Well, and and this is her for your consideration moment, actually. You're right. (laughs) Um, But but it's it's worth noting, and I I realize this rewatching this, that that even though the companion has uh, dematerialized, the command uh, the companion must be hearing Nancy Hedford's words because of something that is about to happen, and and the companion might not have done this if if the companion did not hear Nancy Hedford's words. So a couple of things about this moment. I agree, the performance is great, and what I find so interesting is that. She was a person who created a persona for herself as the hard-edged commissioner who cares about her work. And that and now at the last moments of her life, she's realizing to some degree the emptiness of that. That she's good at her work, but she's missing this other thing. And what hit me is, in a weird way, as we discussed throughout this podcast, she's making has made the choice that Kirk has made. She chose work over love. That's what Kirk's done throughout the show. And now she is realizing at the end of her life that maybe that wasn't the right choice. Mm-hmm. We're back on the Enterprise, and again, we're continuing the methodical search. You're not going to spend a lot of time on it. And then we come back to another conversation with the companion. Uh, Ralph, again, I'm just going to point out the way you frame this shot, that you have 
the hand of Kirk <laughs> in the foreground with the Universal Translator. You have uh, Cochrane way in the background. And this is what I noticed you doing throughout this side of Paradise, is putting the spores, putting the plant in the foreground or in a key spot in the frame as sort of the subject. Uh, it's really just really dynamic framing for me. So, Steve, we have talked before about a story device in a screenplay where you come into a scene while it's already happening. Yes. What is that called again? Enter late, leave early. I never occurred to me watching this episode before, but rewatching it now after we have talked about this. Uh, but now here we are. We have uh, we came into a scene late. That, like the conversation is already underway. There's no setup to it. It's already happening. But I love how the scene actually begins. Companion, do you love the man? Understand? Is he important to you? More important than anything. Is he? And Kirk is looking for the right words. As though he were a part of you. He is part of me. She doesn't feel like he's a part of me. He is a part of me. That's what I mean by total mm. unconditional love. The man is the center of all things. I care for him. But you can't really love him. You haven't the slightest knowledge of love, the total union of two people. You are the companion, he is the man. You are two different things. You can't join. You can't love. William Shatner, during the scenes where he is trying to reason with the companion, is some of the very finest acting that Shatner has ever done on Star Trek. That always made a huge impression on my life. And that also made a big impression on someone else, Ralph, who was watching the dailies of Metamorphosis during the scenes. Do you want to tell the story, Ralph? Dean Kuhn? Yes. When we got to the end of the second scene that ends with, the companion saying, if I were human, there can be love. And at the end of the scene, in the dark screening room, Gene Kuhn said, that's why we pay him the big money. Yeah. You may keep him here forever. But you will always be separate. Apart from him. It's like the breakthrough finally happens when the companion says, if I were human, there can be love. Wow. Mm, what, amazing. What, what I find really interesting about this scene is that in a weird way, structurally, it is the scene with Landrew. It <laughs> is... Scene of what? With Landrew from Return of the Archons. Oh, it okay. is a classic Kirk. They're talking to the computer to say there is a contradiction here is that you love the man, but you are destroying him. It, and yet it's doing it, A, not to a computer, and it's doing it, <laughs> instead of using that to destroy Landrew, it's trying to use that to make the companion understand something about what love is. And then the companion disappears, and we think it didn't work. And it's so interesting that now we hear 
Kirk's reasoning. They ask what he was trying to do. Again, uh, you're framing Ralph with Kirk just stepping into that position with Spock, McCoy, and Cochran going diagonally back to the left. Yeah. It's a very sort of formal way that people don't actually really stand that often in real life. It looks really, really cool in this shot. (laughs) But they should. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. What did you hope to gain by that, Jim? Try to convince her of the hopelessness of it. Love sometimes expresses itself in sacrifice. I thought maybe if she loved him, she'd let him go. But she, or it, is inhuman, Captain. You cannot expect her to react like a human. I tried. And then, just as Kirk says, I tried, you hear a voice before you see who is saying it. Another great device that's used in film to a very effective way. You hear like an angel, a female angel, say the words, Sephiroth Cochran. They all turn around and standing in the door to Cochran's home, looking better than she did the entire time we have known her. Standing in the door is Nancy Hedford, but the voice has a, an echo to it. So there is something different about about Nancy Hedford, and that brings us to the end of Act 3. And that shot, and this I learned, I guess, at the, at the television archives, when they, we cut to Nancy, it was a wide shot that zoomed in to her for the blackout. And obviously, the shot I did was spoiled at the lab, and Eleanor mm. told that she was called back for almost a day's work to, to oh, get wow. that. Wasn't there a, uh, a problem with the negative well, or something? It, 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 it got ruined at the lab, and so they, they called her back. And at that time, later, the Directors Guild, if, if a director had done a show and they needed to re- do retakes, the director would be called back. At, you know, I was called back on one where I was working, so you could turn it down. But it, in the, those earlier days... Uh, they they didn't have to bother, so they they just reshot it. You know, called her back and put the house back up, put enough of a backing behind it so they could have a purple sky, and then did a a, a zoom shot on her. And she is told that the difference when she came back, she had lost like twenty five or twenty five pounds. Oh, wow. and they had problems with the costume just to pull it around to to make it fit. She had pneumonia. That's yeah, right. She had yeah. lost some weight because of pneumonia. Right. Um, and and when you rewatch that scene now, uh, knowing that you do see that she is a a, a little more gaunt in her appearance. But I mean, if you don't know that, if you're seeing it for the first time, it's on screen for what five seconds. So, like, yeah, yeah just a couple of yeah. seconds. But we so so that brings us into the beginning of Act Four, picking right up where Act Three left off. I don't understand it. This is a scene where I had problems before and I still have problems and I found out why I have the problems. What Uh, are they? It was a problem of script. As Gene Kuhn originally had planned it, Hedford died and the companion took over the body. The Mm. network were concerned about doing that. Because of them, it had to be that the two are in there, and that starts to become a problem. It's her. What? Don't you understand? It's a companion. And she keeps 
giving more reasons why it's the two of us, the two of us. And as she arrives at Cochrane and he backs away from her. We frighten you. We've never frightened you before. This is where I really have a problem because she said, we frighten you. And it should be, I frighten you. Mm -hmm. I've never frightened you before. And that's because of the network's interference. Well, do you you think it would have been better if they weren't joined, if it was just a companion taking over the dead body? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I don't. I don't. Because for me, I mean, you're the director, but for me, <laughs> uh, A, there's something somewhat macabre about that idea. And the, but the second thing is, is that with the, the great scene with Hedford where she is lamenting her lack of love, this is a resolution to her character's journey. Whereas if she just dies, then she doesn't have that resolution of the journey. This way, the companion Wait, say, say, say gets that, Say that again, where Hedford is doing what? where she's weeping about the fact that she didn't have love in her life. And so if she dies, that, re- that has no resolution. Whereas that if she comes back and can be part with the companion and love the man, well, then now that is resolved for her. And so you resolve both the companion's problem, not having a body and being human to love the man, and Hedford's problem, where she had a lack of love in her life, and now she can piggyback on the companion's love. To me, it's a much better resolution. How come then we never hear from Edford the next scene with a scarf? Why isn't she gives, giving her side of the I, thing? I 100% agree. You needed one or two lines that were from head, more from Hedford that we heard her personality yeah. come through. That would have all right. I, I'm going to answer both your questions here. So, first of all, Ralph is absolutely correct. Uh, NBC standards and practices man Stan Robertson did step in and expressed concern that the companion was taking over uh, Nancy Hefford's body after after she died, and he was concerned that there would be a, a pushback from religious groups. Yes. So that is why he insisted that Hefford would still be alive to an extent when the companion entered the body. Now, the reason why we don't hear more from the Nancy hot side of it, especially like in the scene with the scarf is because the Nancy side was slipping away. So she is there. She is there with the companion, but the companion is the more dominant presence within the body. The companion is the one who is speaking with the echo, with the reverb in her voice. So the companion is the more dominant side of of this uh, very complex life form now that does indeed encompass both Hedford and the companion. Okay. From my standpoint, that for me was an obstacle in doing the scene. I had to make sure that the audience was just accepting that it was the companion. This is loneliness. Oh, what a bitter thing. I like this for a whole bunch of reasons. The first of which is this is the first moment she realizes what Kirk was saying about ceasing to exist, what the 150 years by himself must have been like for Cochrane. That's the first thing I like about it. The second thing that I find so interesting is Kirk told her that the only way for her to truly join with the man is to be human. And yet, they joined in a way that humans can't join. And in fact, part of the nature of being human is to feel separate sometimes. 
you know, like that that's just a, a constant within the human condition, feeling separate, feeling lonely, striving for connection. And yet what I think about it that's important is, is and this is the way it kind of hit me this time, is that I just went, oh, Star Trek's one of Star Trek's key pieces of philosophy is one of contrasts. Things must be in dynamics that light needs dark Joining needs separation. Strength needs struggle. Happiness depends upon adversity. It's never just a simple thing. It's always a complex thing of what we're striving for. But in in that scene, though, the character and the actress, they don't have all the, those references to her. Of course. I mean, this this is a, a form that was just made of clouds. And now mm-hmm. for the first time, it's walking. And mm-hmm. the one person that it knew was Cochrane. And as she approached him, he backed away from her. And all of a sudden, she's done this, moved into this new form. And here she is in this strange world. And it is, it's scary. It's lonesome. I mean, it's like if a baby is born at the age of 25 and just wakes up and how affected they will be at just looking around if that's their first view of life as as a human. Well, it's painful and it's lonely and oh, it's yes. scary and it's joyful and it's beautiful. Yes, yes, it's and all I, those things. In terms of Cochrane taking a step back, so, but he takes a step back initially, but in hearing, hearing the companion talk about loneliness and 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 understanding, my gosh, oh, this is oh, what yes. it means to be human. Uh, the companion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as she is talking about the solitude, the isolation, the loneliness you must feel. But it is also when she talks about the sacrifice of giving up her immortality to be human and to learn what it means to really love. You said we would not know love because we were not human. Now we are human. We know the change of the days. We will know death. To touch the hand of the man, nothing is as important. Cochrane says to her, You're very beautiful. And she says that beautiful line. Part of me understands. Part does not, but it pleases me. And at that moment, Cochrane has learned to express empathy for and compassion for something that he is now learning to finally understand after 150 years. And Eleanor Donahue, during this last act, when she she just shows so much grace and loveliness and vulnerability and innocence, pure, pure love. She's wonderful. I love the fact that Gene Kuhn allows himself to be poetic in the way that she speaks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, let me walk, Zephram. Let me feel the earth against my feet. Let me feel the warmth of the sun on my face. You beside me. Let me feel these things. But she didn't say, let us walk. She said, let me. Ah. Uh Uh, Good point. So I'll tell you the thought that I had here is that as she's wanting to experience life, I went, there's a weird connection between this story and Pygmalion. Not not the Shaw Pygmalion, but the the original myth, because there's you know Pygmalion is the story of the sculptor who made a beautiful sculpture and fell in love with it, and then Aphrodite brought the sculpture to life. And I went, oh, here 
the companion is sort of both the statue and the sculptor. And she saves the man. And in giving him life, she falls in love, but can only experience love by becoming a real woman, just as Pygmalion needs his statue to, to become a real woman for them to fall in love. And as I was looking at this and thinking about it, I realized, so Pygmalion is a story from Ovid. And do you know what Ovid's, the name of Ovid's book that Pygmalion appears in? Metamorphosis? Metamorphosis. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Steve. Yeah. Mind blown. Yeah. Oh, I, my gosh. <laughs> I, I literally just found that this morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy Toledo. That's amazing. So so uh, they head off together. Yes. And, uh, and, and I have a comment to make there. Go ahead. Now, I hate to find fault with my directing, but <laughs> I don't like the shot of them walking away. Why? Mm. They just, just, just two bodies lumbering away, walking. And I should have shot it from the other side. So I see them in the foreground and the other trio in the background. And as they come forward walking, he's not just looking ahead. He's looking at her. You're right. Oh, wow. You're right. Wow. That would have been better. Yeah. And, that would have been better. But huh? it's a good scene. <laughs> yes. And then as they go out, the three in the background are looking. And ideally, then I would then cut into a close up of Kirk to get his reaction of what's happening there. But as they walk away, uh, you do cut back to Shatner oh, and Nimoy and no, the Farce no, Kelly. No, no, no. You, or if I do, it's it's the wide, a wide shot. I, I don't remember whether I do You do. You, sh- you cut back to the three, okay. the three shot of them. And uh, Kirk is standing in front of but, McCoy and Spock, and he's smiling. Yeah. You, you know what? What's funny, Ralph, is this thing that I've been describing throughout that I just admire about the way you direct, which is the way you frame shots. The shot you just described is one of those Ralph Sinensky shots that I like, that where it's it's much more dynamic and interesting with foregrounded background elements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which one? The, the one in the, the I've just described. The one, wa- yeah, w- walking towards camera. The one yeah, you just I, described. Yeah, because the walking away, they're just walking, and we're not yeah. continuing the story of him. Maybe not looking at her, but as he's walking, turn. He turns and looks at her. And at that point, she's, of course, admiring. Right. You could see her reaction to the world. And as she's seeing a new world, she's discovering a new world. He's discovering this woman that he loves. You would have gotten so much more out of the shot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So uh, we contact the Enterprise. What happened, Captain? Interesting story, Scotty. I can't tell you now because, quite frankly, I don't know how it's going to end. And then... We cut to the most beautiful moment of this episode (laughs) where I got to say, no matter how many times I see the scene, I, it, it moves me to the brink of tears every single time. And as Nancy Hedford as the companion is watching Zephram Cochran talk about going back to the stars and showing showing her around the companion holds up Nancy Hedford's scarf. And because of the pattern of the scarf and the pattern of the visual effects of the companion, the companion here in human form by holding up the scarf 
is seeing Zephyr Cochran as she had seen him for the past 150 years. The beauty of this moment is that the pattern on the scarf matches the pattern of the companion herself. But how did all of that happen, Ralph? My concern, still wanting to make sure that the audience realized that the companion figure, that it was a woman, to, to, to tie it together and to, to just have opened and accepted it. And I thought, as the companion, as the cloud, she has never seen a scarf before. And right. just mm-hmm. so she's looking at the scarf, that's just another one of the new things to adjust to in life. When we saw it in dailies, the scarf was green and purple on mm. both sides. And it was so dark, we did not see, were not aware of him in it, seeing him through the scarf. When they were doing the final stuff in the lab, and probably with a representative from the company, they spotted it. And when you cut to the point of view, the scarf changes color. It's yellow. Mm, yeah. And that's what matches. You see, I would like to take credit for having thought of it, but the fact that it came together, and if I hadn't had the scarf lifted, it wouldn't have been there. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a magic moment. So to be clear, you're saying that the reason that it ended up matching color-wise was you actually had to do color correction in the lab yes. in order to make it more transparent or yes. more translucent? Yeah, to, 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 to make it match. And, right. and at first, when, when I saw it at first, I thought, oh, it doesn't match. And then I thought, yes, it does, because the scarf might have been, been the same color, but the companion figure, that's the way she saw things. Yes. And then, of course, when it cuts back to lowering the scarf, it's green again. So, so do you think that when the Westheimer Company did the visual effects for Metamorphosis, yeah. do you think that the Westheimer Company saw the scarf? I think it could have been Eddie Milkus. Eddie Milkus, associate producer, yeah. Could have been Bobby Justman, but I don't think Justman did that. But somebody from the company spotted that and said, let's adjust the color to create that fact. Uh, I mean, it it is like an amazing... Oh, it's incredible. Incredible moment. I mean, it's it's just such an absolutely beautiful moment that that transcends Star Trek. It's just great television. And when we walk back to the offices after the screening gene coon did say to me how did you know to do that moment with the scarf at the end uh, well how could anybody know we didn't know what the what the scarf uh, what the, the uh, companion was going to look like wow it really is an amazing moment and i think the scene's amazing too because kirk said a couple of scenes ago love sometimes expresses itself in sacrifice and now we're going to see. It's so funny, Scott. You brought up uh, O. Henry a while ago, and this is an O. Henry moment because she has she can't leave the planet, and she knows he's going to leave, and so she has sacrificed himself, herself, her life, in order to have one moment with him and allow him to go live his life. But even if you stay here, you'll eventually die. The joy of this hour, I am pleased. And the thing that he wants most is to get the hell off the planet. And in this moment, he realizes that this is the person he loves. And he didn't know that until he's looking at her 
right now. Well, I can't just fly away and leave you here. You must be free, Zephram Cochran. You saved my life. You took care of me. You loved me. You never understood. I do now. It is such a beautiful moment. And he, and he kisses the companion for the first time in 150 years. Or actually, I should say, he kisses the companion back because for 150 years during their, their, their connections that, that the companion had been kissing him in her own way in, in the, the, the form that she was already in. Enterprise is waiting, Mr. Cock. I can't take her away from here. If I do, she'll die. If I leave her, she'll die of loneliness. I owe everything to her. I can't leave her. I love her. And it's such a beautiful moment of closure. And as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are about to depart, Cochran says, Captain, don't tell them about me. Not a word, Mr. Cochran. Which should be the end of the dialogue. Should be the end of the dialogue. What, what do you mean by that? Not a word, Mr. Cochran, and exits as you see Cochran and the companion. What, what did you think of the bit where McCoy asked Kirk, what about the war in Epsilon Canaris Three? I, I hated it then and now. It's interesting. Why do you hate that scene? I, I actually like it. I like going out on the romantic mood. That started with, you took care of me. You loved me. I didn't know that before. I know it now. And I would like to have had that. I totally agree, Ralph. And I think you could do it, though. I think this is where I always think about this when you're writing of like, how can I have my cake and eat it, too? How can I get all of the things that I want? And I think if you restructured this piece of the script is that he tells Kirk, I want to stay with her. Kirk alone says the thing about, well, we can find someone else that can stop the war. Then you go back to the companion who says, no, you have to go with them, and you have your final romantic lines with him saying, I want to stay with you. So you can end on the romantic lines, but still get the other stuff, too. I think there would be a way to do it. Okay, yeah. now here's why I actually do like this last line that, the, that McCoy and Kirk say. And Ralph, if you had asked me this question yesterday or two days ago, I would have agreed with you 100%. Not a word, Mr. Cochran. They walk away, produced by Gene Rodbury, you know, end of story. But what I realized when McCoy says, what about the war in Epsilon Canaris III? Kirk responds. Well, I'm sure the Federation can find another woman somewhere who will stop that war. And what I like about that line is that he says, woman, not another person to stop the war. He says, I'm sure the Federation will find another woman to stop the war. Maybe it was subconscious. I don't know. I wish I could ask him because I, I wish I could ask Gene Kuhn a whole lot of questions about Star Trek. But why he made sure to use the word woman in that final line to, to, to sort of make up for his, his lack of women in Aaron de Mercy and Devil in the Dark, that, that it, was a, it was a woman who was going to stop this war on Epsilon Canaris Three. I thought it was a really nice touch. Great way to end the episode. Ralph, I see your point. Steve, I see your point on why not a word would have been perfect, and it absolutely would have been. But uh, the revision, the reassessment that I have for this episode that he ended with that, they'll find another woman to stop this war, I thought was a really nice touch. 
actually, I think the reason it was there is because it just replaced the usual scene with Kirk in his chair and they're making light talk. Yep. To, and I mean, it, it, it was just that scene. And I, I don't like this one any better than I like that with those. <laughs> the best ending for me was Spock saying, for the first time in my life, I was happy. Yeah, that one's great. Yeah. That is great. The, That's one for the books. <laughs> the one thing I find interesting about this last Kirk line is that Kirk's always the guy who chose duty over love. And now he's saying it's he's helping this woman who is choosing love over duty, which I find really interesting. Scott, what did people say about this episode? Well, Dorothy Fontana, who, as you know, had oh, uh, next to Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, and Bob Justman, Dorothy Fontana uh, rounded out the Fab Four of the original Star Trek uh, as a story editor, as a screenwriter, and as a rewriter uh, for so much. Uh, she had this to say. She said, Metamorphosis, to me, was a very affecting and touching script. I loved it. And Eleanor Donahue had this to say. I remember watching it at home. I'm quite often nervous about watching something I'm in because there's nothing you can do about it once it's out there. But I was very pleased with it, very happy. And what is Ralph Sinensky's last words? Well, I've said them already. <laughs> <laughs> I've run out of words. No. It was my favorite of the Star Treks just because to create the sh a show, that feeling of a planet that is different you know, then the backgrounds say in as good as they were in this side of paradise or the backgrounds in bread and circuses. I mean, it was really creating another world. And that's uh, the world of imagination. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, what is what does Steve Morris think about metamorphosis, especially after this epic reassessment? Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate it far more than I ever did, which I knew that I would because I trust you, Scott, and I knew that there was more here for me to discover. This is the big thing I've been thinking about is that we've talked about this relationship between logic and emotion, and we've talked about this relationship between uh, the need to struggle and strive and stagnation. And it suddenly kind of came together a little bit, even oh, we go all the way back to the cage. And what is it that the Telosians need? They need emotion and their life has become stagnant without it. What is it? What are little girls made of? What is Roger Corby missing? He's missing that human emotion and interaction. We have Spock, who is the symbol of all of this, who is continually struggling, like in this side of paradise, like in the naked time, trying to repress this part of himself. And here we have the companion who is able to experience at the cost of mortality, love and emotion and all those things which make life worth living. And simultaneously, suddenly I went, oh, and what is Kirk doing? What is the hero of our stories doing who's allowing all of this to happen? He's walling himself off from love. That's what hit me so hard this time, is that Kirk is sacrificing love so that all of these other people can experience it, can move towards it. That's what hit me. You know, what hit me this time, Steve and Ralph, was seeing metamorphosis in the context in which we've seen all these episodes that we've talked about so far. You know, Steve, you and I have had so many aha moments, so many moments where where we've linked episodes together, which was what made one of our recent podcasts about who is James T. Kirk even possible. But the thing that really struck me this time was 
I've seen this episode. I, I mean, I lost count after 300 times. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. And what struck me again is while I was watching this episode, at each point where I got moved emotionally to the brink of tears, it happened again. It never fails. The only other TV show or film that moves me to tears even after I've seen it many, many times over, is E.T. the extraterrestrial. Mm. It you know, never fails to move me in such a way, and neither does Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, like I said at the top of this conversation, is an episode that represents the very, very, very best of Star Trek. It is what Star Trek is all about. It is, it is uh, uh, an episode that has come to resonate so much deeper, is so much more relevant now than it was in 1967 when it aired. Uh, it is an episode that many fans and, and, and also uh, uh, people who've worked on the various Star Trek shows, they'll say the same thing. Yeah, when I was a kid, I thought it was a fine episode. But as I grew older and wiser and had life experiences... I've come to see that Metamorphosis is a masterpiece episode. And Ralph, you know that you know who else has told me that about Metamorphosis, that it is their favorite episode as well, is Mike Akuda and Denise Akuda. And Denise. Yes. They they love this episode just as much as you do, as much as I do, as much as so many, so many people. And I have to have to say that, you know, for Steve and I to do this deep dive with you is really the culmination of a, of a lifetime of love and passion for Star Trek. And again, you know, I wouldn't even be here doing this with you if Steve Morris had not come after me for almost two years saying, hey, we should do a Star Trek podcast together. So, so to Steve Morris, A, for, for being persistent and B for just his week after week, beautiful job cutting and editing, uh, doing all the work he has to do on this podcast. I am beyond grateful. I know you, I think you know this, but I'm not sure Steve does. But when Mike Okuda called me to ask me if I would be interviewed for the Roddenberry vaults and I said, no, you told him no. Why? Well, because my feelings about Star Trek. Right, right. I, mean, I still had wounds. Mm. Right. And, and Mike understood, but he and he said Denise wants to talk to you, and so she came on. She didn't come on to change my mind. She just came on and started talking about metamorphosis, mm-hmm. and she was so sincere and with the same enthusiasm for it that you have, and it was just so honest. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Oh wow! Wow. That's great. Ralph, uh, your your website, Tenetsky.com, has such great insight and recollections of your career, not just directing Star Trek, but all of the hours of, of, of more than 100 hours, uh, well over 100 hours of television that you've uh, directed. 200. 200. Well over 200 episodes uh, of, of television that he's directed over the years. So please... Ladies and gentlemen, everyone, please check out Senensky.com for great stories from the man himself. And uh, again, Ralph, thank you once again for joining us. And we hope that you will join us again when we get around to doing Bread and Circuses, which is the third episode of Star Trek that you directed. 
Um, and if uh, Ralph, it's been absolutely incredible having you here. This has been this is just such a unique honor to have you and to talk about this beloved episode. And if people listening want to tell us your thoughts on the on Metamorphosis, just go on Facebook is the easiest place. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. You can follow the show on Twitter at Enter Incidents on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show a whole bunch of places. The easiest being Apple Podcasts, Spotify or YouTube. If you're on Apple Podcasts, take an extra minute and leave a review. If you're on YouTube, leave your comments. We love interacting with you there. Uh, Scott, if people wanted to find you out on the interwebs, how would they do that? Well, you can shoot me a tweet on Twitter at MovieMance or follow me on Instagram at MovieMance. And for everyone listening, like Steve said, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And for everyone listening, if you love Star Trek, then then to, to do a deep dive, on a Star Trek episode and be joined by its director for the entire time is truly a rare, rare experience and definitely one that we are very, very grateful for. So we hope you will share Enterprise Incidents, especially this episode of Enterprise Incidents with fellow Star Trek fans. Ralph, any, 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 anything else you want to just say to before we, we part ways here? Thank you. Thank you. You are beyond welcome and to everyone who's been joining us on enterprise incidents we are grateful for your support so please join us for the very next episode which is friday's child so until the next episode of enterprise incidents keep going boldly